It's a positive film. It has heroes and villains, and uh, that it essentially uh, is a fun movie to watch. It's been a long time since people have been able to go to the movies and see a sort of straightforward, wholesome, fun adventure. Well, it's a fantasy. It's not science fiction so much as it is space fantasy. And it's about people. It's about, it's finally about people and not finally about science. The story when you actually put it into words is only so much nonsense to hang a great visual experience onto. It's the stuff that fairy tales are made of sort of boiling down religion into a very basic concept. Uh, the fact that there is some deity or some power or some force that sort of controls our destiny uh, works for good and also works for evil. Marvelous, healthy innocence. Great pace, wonderful to look at, full of guts, nothing unpleasant. I mean, people go bang, bang, and people fall over and dead. But, you know, no horrors. A sort of wonderful freshness about it, a kind of like a wonderful fresh air. It's got whatever you want it to be. It's a, it's pure entertainment. It's like a roller coaster ride, and it can be interpreted as long as you enjoy it, which is the intention. Hello and welcome back to Generation Skywalker for the latest edition of Those Old Fossils. And joining me tonight, we've got an elite team of experts to uh, take you through tonight's show. I've got Grant with me. Good evening, Grant. Uh, good evening, lads. I've got Jez with me. Good evening, Jez. Good evening. I've got Mr. Daniels with me. Good evening, Mark. Good evening. And we've got Craig. Good evening, Craig. Hello. Lovely to uh, all get together. We haven't talked vintage for a little while. Been a couple of months. Mark, I don't know if anyone else has been watching it, but the old Leicester Toy Shop, their tour of all the vintage shops around the country has been a little highlight over on YouTube. And uh, sitting down the other night uh, with a cocoa and, and there's little Mark's face on screen. Mark, you're on the Leicester Toy Shop. Can you just tell us a bit about what that uh, YouTube channel is and what your involved was with it? Yeah, Joe Hand, who runs Leicester Vintage Toy Shop, in Leicester, funnily enough, and his um, one of his partners, Gavin, have produced this show, YouTube channel programme called uh, Toy Shop on Tour. And they meant to do it last year, but obviously couldn't because of uh, something called COVID. Um, so they've uh, postponed it and um, they've, they've started it this year. And uh, basically what they do is they go around the country and they go around to toy shops buying up and highlighting and showcasing different toy shops and different toys with the aim of filling this van that they're going around touring the UK in uh, with all their purchases. Uh, it's a bit like a sort of um, antiques road trip stroke, salvage hunters stroke, you know, antiques roadshow kind of programme. Anybody that's into vintage toys of any genre, any years, just you know, you've got to watch it because it's fascinating. It's great. Joe and Gav are just brilliant. I really know their onions. And um, I, I've known Joe uh, some years and visited his shop. And he's 
been up to see me uh, on a couple of occasions. And um, I got a phone call one afternoon, and it was Joe, and he said, um, mate, we've had a bit of a slow day today. We're doing the filming for episode eight, and uh, we're about 10 minutes away. Can we um, come over and film your collection? And I was like, I couldn't really say no. <laughs> so uh, they came over, and um, yeah, th- th- that was the result that was on screen. And could have quite happily chatted for, you know, three, four hours with them. Um, it was just uh, great to have them over. And what you see on screen there is a, a very small fraction of uh, some of the stuff we, we spoke about and things that they filmed. So, uh, yeah, that was good. They had a good response from it. The first thing I, I thought when I saw your, your little face was you you obviously knew they were coming. Did you strategically pick up a cup of tea because you didn't know what to do with your hands? Everybody, everybody's <laughs> going, oh, it's a cup of tea. Um, yeah, I wanted, to, I wanted to try and look natural. And the, the only way I could do that, I thought, oh, I'll, I know, I'll, I'll, I'll go and make a fresh cup. Because I, I put the kettle on because I thought they, the, the lads, when they turned up, would want a cup of tea. So, but yeah, I uh, answered the door with a cup of tea. My Judge Dread mug. You did look natural. I mean, you were leaning on the door frame at one point and you were leaning on the back of that sofa and then you sat on the chair back to front, didn't you? You looked at all the natural poses. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, you came across really well, mate. And it was great to see your, your collection. I mean, we see bits of it. Uh, we record on, on Skype and we see bits in the background. And I've seen photos of that Zoids display, but it was nice to see it on a, on a full camera there. Um, I tell you what. If I had a pound for every person that wants that Zoids display, I'd have about £10. <laughs> it's a great piece. It's huge, isn't it? It is. And the artwork is fast. It's just fantastic. Well, brilliant. And uh, we do urge people to go and check that out. I think there is a link to it on our on our social media, isn't there? This is the trailer for Touch Up On Tour. The new TV series that takes you, dear viewer, all around the country as me and Gav buy as many toys as we possibly can and pop them in this van. Over 30 shops in the UK. All coming to your screen very soon. Here's a preview. Action figures, dolls, Star Wars, weird stuff, Transformers, aliens, Thundercats, bootlegs, He-Man. From all the way down south to all the way up north. East, West, Wales and Scotland, we're covering it all. We'll have rare items and small favourites. So join me, Joe, Gav and Matt the cameraman as we take this Toy Shop on Tour. Yeah, so moving on a bit then, I think it'd be a miss of us not to bring this up, but the prop store auction has just taken place over the last few days, and there was a, a C-3PO mint on card in there with a, a quite a rare sticker. Now, I'm going to go to Mark and Grant here, because I think between the two of you, you've probably got the bases covered on this. Can you tell us a bit about what it was and why it was so special and what kind of money this thing reached? Well, it's um, a gold, rather large gold sticker, which advertises the fact that it's the five millionth Star Wars action figure that Palatoy have sold, produced and manufactured. They were given out. Now, I've got to be honest with you. I had no idea this figure existed, this this sticker existed. 
until it popped up on the prop store site. And um, Craig Stevens, who wrote the Star Wars phenomenon in Great Britain book, uh, actually did cover this figure and, and these figures because at the time nobody knew whether it was just the one figure that had got this sticker. Where were they available? Were they available on on mass to the general public? Was it a Palatoy in-store giveaway or was it just given to reps? Nobody really knew any history behind it, where it had come from. And apparently uh, they were given away at, was it Heathrow Airport, Grant? Something like that. When the figures landed or or Darth Vader was there and giving figures out and they got the sticker on, uh, apparently uh, a couple of guys had, had sort of chimed in and said um, they'd got card backs with the sticker on but this was the first mock that had been that had ever surfaced and certainly been uh, for sale in the open market and it was on a palatoy c3po removable limbs 45a which is in itself a very 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 hard figure to find and i think it what was it over eleven thousand pounds with fees yeah i believe it was approximately eight thousand five hundred uh, was the final bid with an estimation of two to three thousand? So, I mean, somebody uh, personally, personally, I think that was a, a good deal. I know we're talking about a lot of money for an action figure, but when you compare it to standard production, some of the prices standard production figures fetch these days, you know, given its rarity, that's the first one that surfaced. Um, a lot of really high end collectors with very deep pockets don't have an example of this figure in their collection. I think that was comparatively uh, cheap. Did you, have, uh, did you have a guess, Mark, what you thought it was going to get before the auction? Uh, I did. I, th- I thought we were in Palatoy uh, 30 back Boba Fett territory, to be honest with you. I thought we were looking at 15, 20, 25,000 pounds at least, given the fact that it was, it, it was so rare. But Again, there's only a handful of these figures exist. Uh, whether they exist on the same figure or different figures, you know, don't know. Maybe more will surface in the coming weeks, months, years, uh, now that this one's been highlighted and, and probably got a bit of um, uh, exposure. Yeah, the, the, you know, there was comments made that there were more than just this one figure. And if those people have that information, it's such a shame that they decide not to actually give that knowledge and information along with that post. Yeah, it's, um, it, you know, again, it's some people like to play their cards very close to their chest, don't they? Yeah, the because um, I was thinking, well, when the Vinyl Keep Jabber came up for sale, the, the uh, Paddy Toy 12-back one a couple of years back, that went from around about 9,000, uh, which was quite a big deal at the time. I was expecting somewhere around that. Yeah, and again, you know, it's a production figure. This, this is a production figure, but it's got that added element to it which um just sets it above far and beyond uh, you know a lot of standard production figures i'd love to see another one come up for sale and and see if the, it is just that particular figure that, that the sticker applies to yeah i don't expect to see some customized card backs coming out that uh, would work now oh well, i'm sure there will be did they do it for any other figure like was there a, a you know a, a, a seven and a half million or a ten million pound sticker I've never seen anything like this. No, completely unknown. Like I say, I didn't even know this one existed until it came up for sale. So um, it must have been close to, uh, well, it was right in the bang middle of the uh, Empire era, wasn't it? 45As uh, coming up for Jedi. So 1981, possibly 82. Yeah, 
somewhere like that. So, yeah, maybe 12 months away from uh, Jedi. Did anyone on here bid for it? Silence. Yeah, my, my pockets are nowhere near deep enough. Yeah, definitely an interesting interesting piece. I think maybe in December's edition of those old fossils, maybe we should delve into the prop store auction a bit more and uh, maybe do a bit more digging and see if we can find anything on that. If anyone's got any information, it'd be great to know it. See, what I loved about that card back in particular, and I think I've written this on, on the Facebook post when we were given the heads up about this, was the choice of C-3PO to me because it was the removable limbs and you've got him in sort of Chewbacca's knapsack, you know, on the back of his back, and he's got his arms up. And to me, it very much looked like this was C-3PO clapping to uh, to go with the fact that this, at the end of the day, was a celebration of, of um, success from the Palatoy point of view. So to me, it looked like C-3PO was there. And as he says in the films, just going, wonderful. Um, and uh, yeah. I just thought it was a great card back, a great character to to choose. I don't think they could have chosen a better one. And the fact it was golden just added to it. I think that's that's the question, Then, If there is more of these, are they all on the C-3PO limbs card? That's that's the thing, isn't it? That's the, that's the real sort of question. And also, how many were handed out? And you would think, wouldn't you, that with a sticker like that, whoever, whoever was given one would think, hmm, might be worth keeping hold of this. You never know. I reckon, I reckon there's some in collections up and down the country and we just don't know. It's very possible, isn't it? Yeah, great piece, great piece. Definitely. We will definitely delve more into that in next month's show. Something that we're all looking forward to. Now, I think the vintage show is where we need to talk about it. Farthest From is back. Two years since the last show, back in December I think it was November the 30th, actually, 2019. We are going to be there as a team. I mean, this is the first proper event that we are going to attend as Generation Skywalker. Um, I know Craig and Grant did represent us at Echo Life, but we are going to have a a spot in the hall floor where we want to speak to as many people as possible. We want to get interviews and we want to show you what we do. Now, Fibers Rob is on the Sunday, which is the 12th of December. Craig? What, what, what is our setup going to be? What, what are we going to be doing? Well, we're going to be uh, in the hall with a stand that uh, Mark's just designed and we're sending off to print. So it should look stunning and beautifully represent the quality of our output uh, in stand format. It's going to be fun. It's going to be fun to be physical. Um, I think we've all missed hanging out together, uh, chatting to people. And, uh, and yeah, it's going to be an opportunity for us to... You know, catch up with a lot of people that we know, a lot of people that we know listen, but also introduce what we do to people who maybe don't. So we're going to try and do that the best way we can in a busy, noisy hall, which we're still discussing. We'll be giving out some cool swag, which we'll reveal a little bit closer to the event. But Craig, are you going to be there? I am going to be there. Yeah, yeah, I'm going really? to be filming. Jess, are you going to be there? I am 100% going to be there. I am so looking forward to this. Yeah, Mark, you going to be there? I am going to be there. Hey, great. Uh, Grant? Yeah, I'm going to be there Friday, Saturday, Sunday and Monday. So coast to coast. <laughs> Tuesday, Wednesday. Not going <laughs> up. And Dan's going to be there and I'm going to be there. We have got a full team on the Sunday, which is going to be a, it's going to be brilliant to spend a day with these boys and talk to everybody. Uh, me and Grant will definitely be there. Also on Saturday is the family fun day. Uh, me and Grant will be manning the stall there and hopefully Jez as well. So uh, if you're there on a Saturday, we will also be um, grabbing interviews and talking to people there as well. 
So it sounds good. And obviously he's got Ross Bars coming over from the state to represent uh, CAS, Collector's Archive Services. You can bring in uh, items to be graded. They will take them from you at the event, which is a uh, which is pretty good. And Mataz Rendell is also coming over from Sweden. Uh, you can pre-order his Chromelin Strikes back book from all the cool stuff and uh, pick it up at the event. So uh, some things to look forward to. So, yes, farthest from and the uh, Star Wars Fun Day, 11th and 12th of December. Head down to Ford and Bridge. I think several of us are also going to be about Saturday night for a couple of beers and a boogie. And I will we will be releasing a, a little farthest from show a couple of days before the event for your journey down to uh, down to the new forest. So um, be sure to check that out and relive some of the memories of previous shows. Before we get into the main main bulk of the topic today, Jez, uh, you brought all to our attention recently about um, the subject of classification, the the comment that it's called vintage and modern, and uh, you think it's time for this needs to be shaken up. So uh, over to you, my friend. I don't know. When you say shaken up. The fact is, you guys have broken me. That's what you've done with your talk of modern and all your new purchases and your this, that and the other. You've finally worn me down and, and you've done it. You should be very proud of yourselves. This is someone who was like, no, only only vintage. I was a bit of a snob, really. And, um, and very much like a pusher, you have successfully now got me on crack. And uh, yeah, so Power of the Force 2... Just a little bit, then a little bit more. And then it gets to the fact that I'm now on eBay looking at this, looking at that, searching, completely unknown. I, I'm in the dark with this. And that's a, a another story which we'll just go on to in a second. You know, so I've, I've bought Star Wars Shadows of the Empire carded figures as well. So we're talking Power of the Force range, which came out in 95, the Shadows of the Empire 96. And I, and I think about that. I'm like, you know, this is 25, 26 years ago. This isn't modern. We can't call it vintage, and I know that people have discussed this in the past, but it's so much closer to the original Kenner Palatoy line than it is, you know, Hot Toys, etc. So how do you categorise it? Do you just call it Power of the Force 2? Uh, I mean, in that case, if that's fine by people, then, then fine. But it, does it need a genre in its own right? Does it need classification? You know, we talk about vintage. What else is there? Is there classic? Is there antique? What What is appropriate? Or should it just be a case of, don't worry about it, Jez, you're overthinking it and there are far too many more important things to think about. But, you know, from my point of view, if we were to do a, uh, a, a series, because I think it needs to be more than just a standalone, it doesn't need to do a, a whole podcast series, but if we were to do a, a small collection of Power of the Force collecting knowledge, because let's face it, I am... The uh, you know that TV show An Idiot Abroad. I'm I'm kind of like the equivalent of that guy. I think his name might have been Carl Pilkington or something. Or I'm I'm like the equivalent of that guy for Power of the Force. I'm asking you all these questions, and I'm I just completely don't know. So I was thinking, you know, if you did that as a podcast, do you have it as those old fossils? Do you have it as the modern way? I, I don't think it is those old fossils, but it's definitely not modern. So. How would you classify it? I'm throwing it back to you all now. So here's my take on it. Unfortunately, I don't think the 90s stuff resonates with many people at the moment. Um, I'm not sure it will do. There are some pieces that resonate with people. There's obviously a gap between vintage and what we call modern today that happened in the mid to late 80s. The licensees changed and a lot of the licensees that got picked up in the 90s ended up producing stuff for the prequels. 
So there, I think there is a clear line there, but there was companies like Applause uh, that picked up the license in the 90s, which is basically its original trilogy revamped, isn't it? Even if the films were revamped, the figures were revamped, the mugs were revamped, the costumes, the masks, all that was just revamped and, and, and had like a 90s facade on it. But um, if you were to if you were to break it down, I think you'd have to break it down to a vintage line and then use the terminology that was used in the 90s, which was classic. So I would advocate for that. And then you'd have to then create another line there to say from 99 to 2005, maybe, or 2006, 7. That's your prequel. And then you've got your Clone Wars. And then you've got your Disney, your first stage of Disney. So you'd have, you'd have to break it down into multiple layers. I mean, I, I would like that because I'd like to have that sort of promotion of 90s memorabilia. I think there's some incredible stuff there that's sort of dismissed. So to have that as as its own little section, because it, once it gets added to modern, it, anything that's modern is diluted because obviously it's been going on for you know 20, 25 years. So it's, it's heavily diluted and there's not that yeah. much interest. But if you start segregating it like you do with the, the vintage line, you then get a sort of spotlight put on it. And I think that might generate some more interest. I think a lot of mm. people feel quite burnt though because those who were collecting in the 90s aren't really advocates of the special edition changes and they're not advocates of the Phantom Menace. And a lot of the 90s was based around, you know, the warm-up to the prequels and the special editions. And, you know, saying that the EU seems to be incredibly popular, even more popular today, I guess, because of what's happened with the Disney area. I, I'd be an advocate of it, definitely, because in 2050, is Power of the Force 2 still modern? Yeah, absolutely not. And I think also, I'd be interested to see what the other guys think as well. Thanks for that, Grant. The, with regards to that era, you know, we, we've got all this nostalgia and passion for the original trilogy and, and the vintage collection. But now those people, the children who grew up in the 90s and, and kids were still collecting this, they are going to start getting nostalgic, more nostalgic. for that. That's why the prequels are now doing so much better you know and, the, and those kids who then also grew up with things like um the, you know the the animated series you look at the clone wars etc etc all of those people now are starting to be the ones who are having the disposable income putting more money into it you know and that's what disney is sort of not pandering to but catering for them as well because those people who were there they're now disney's target audience as well you know disney are hedging their bets and going for all sorts of people so i wouldn't be surprised if as young adults you know we're talking say people who are 15 20 years younger than us or well, yeah 10 15 20 years younger than us and they might start buying more and more of these um 90s carded figures and, and action figure lines so it'd be it'd be interesting to know to hear from them what they want to call it because to them it they wouldn't call it modern to them it was their childhood figures so yeah it'd be very that, interesting i think that 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 might that might be the case when it comes to the prequels but with the 90s i i don't know be interested to see what everyone else thinks on this i would say the majority of the uh power of the force 2 collections were actually done by the original trilogy collectors who were in their teens and college and university i have a um a lad that works for me and he's about i want to say about 26 27 now and he's got he played with the power of the force when he was a child he was that age group and he's got tons and he just refers to it as power of the force not power of the force 2 so he's not got that link back to the original power of the force but um he always refers yeah. to it as his power of the force toys so yeah i think there was kids out there maybe not as many though i think Grant's right i think it's definitely our generation that got excited by them yeah and i, I think the, the the 90s is also burdened with a lot of stuff that came out there just wasn't wasn't great uh and but there was some some stuff that came out which is absolutely fantastic 
So I think a lot of it, a lot of the great stuff has been diluted by a lot of the cheap rubbish that was mass produced and released. Yeah, well, there's that cycle of of kitsch, isn't there? So I think you know there was a lot of stuff out there that's not been through that. It's not had that time to become looked on affectionately. I mean, if you look at the, some of the things we get very excited about, like Helix, for example, not great artwork, very naive, very cheap, but it it it's around for long enough and it's suddenly imbued with this extra value of nostalgia and it's so bad it's good almost. I think this is a really good debate and I wonder whether there are clues to where it will go outside our hobby. So in general, sort of collectible terms, antique is something that generally is at least 100 years old. Vintage tends to be things that are around 50 years old in, in the broader kind of antiquing world. I guess the closest comparable sort of set of parameters to what we're talking about is is the comic books. So the comic books have, have clearly developed this strata of eras. So you've got Golden Age, Silver Age, Bronze Age and Modern Age. And, you know, where it goes after that, I don't know. These things have to be fluid. But I guess as, you know, people who collect things, we've got an idea of where comics sit. I mean, does anyone want to hazard a guess of what those eras are? So if I said to you, Golden Age comics, what years would you put to that? 1960s. 1938 to 1956 is the Golden Age of comics. Uh, Silver Age is 1956 to 1970. Bronze Age is up to 1985. And comic collectors consider anything from 1985 to be modern age. Well, if, if you look at the, um, the close of Toys R Us, you know, and obviously toys seem to be like the, the Black Series is very popular with adult collectors. At the moment, the TVC collection is very popular with adult collectors. I wonder if future generations aren't really bothered so much with, you know, physical toys and memorabilia. And that will break down into a period of like there was a 40, 50 year period where toys were extremely popular. And that will break down into sort of golden silver age. Maybe. These are the things that get prescribed retrospectively, aren't they? I mean, we're still kind of working it out but i think we'll start to see some new terminology particularly and for things like ebay you see 90s stuff listed as vintage people don't know what they've got so i think the hobby and you know the dealers and everybody around it are going to have to sort of start to build some common language pretty quickly for for reasons like that i think classic works because if you look at classic cars i think definition of classic car is technically anything older than 20 years and that's exactly where we're looking now for this for this sort of generation of figures and of toys. So, you know, what Grant said earlier about classic, I, I think that fits. I think that works. I think we've discussed it. <laughs> I'm, I'm happy enough. Um, for me, I, I, I have a thirst for wanting to know more. I know they're not the be all and end all, but I've seen these and I've seen the fact that actually I've got that Tarkin figure which you know we never had i've got that troop figure which you never had the, the the power of the force 2 line did whilst it had its flaws it had imagination in there you saw the different sort of iterations which will come out and i've been like oh why have they done this why have they done that and you know we've had drunken conversations in Stu's garage with regards to some of these figures where you guys have, have realized that uh, i think it was like you know dan said is oh it's like watching someone watch stoles for the first time because i was like well tell me about this and for me, it's sparked a little bit of interest in me, I think, because ultimately I love Star Wars. 
um, I, I, I don't have a great deal of nostalgia for that line. But for me, starting to feel like I'm getting priced out of the vintage line now and actually being happy and comfortable in my skin with what I've accrued up to now with the vintage line is just it's just new styles for me. It's exciting. And therefore, I want to know a little bit more. And um, and if that's relevant and interesting to to others, which it may well be, the the idea of maybe a standalone uh, recording where I can almost ask questions and you guys with your knowledge can uh, impart some wisdom. But it was just, yeah, how do we categorise that particular podcast? And, and maybe classic souls is the way. lovely uh, thing we have here on generation skywalker uh, we release these old fossils but we have flexibility we're not tied to doing the same thing each month so this month each of the team that i've got with me tonight has gone away and done a small kind of thesis style look at a certain part of the hobby and and different areas now now two of these are actually coming from blog posts over on generationskywalker.com and um, i'm going to go first to grant who you did a blog grant and when i looked at the date i couldn't believe it was it was the 10th of february we put that out it doesn't seem that long ago but you know that's the best part of eight nine months ago I think the blog post kind of went under the, the radar a little bit. When we put these notes together, I had a little read through it. It's a brilliant post. And it's all about uh, Thai pilot focus collecting and uh, a collector's journey, which is obviously you. So I'm going to hand over to you here to take us through your thesis to start with. It was back in February. You know, I don't usually get much time to actually write any of these blogs. I wish I could you know, commit to more. There's plenty of stuff I'd like to write about. What I wanted to do was narrow down the focus of what I was going to write a blog about. So instead of you know having the full width and breadth of collecting a Kenner action figure, I wanted to narrow it down to a certain type of Kenner action figure. So I think if you know if we can just step back a moment and sort of contextualise where the approach was coming from. This is going back to uh, you know after collecting for for decades, finding the internet Star Wars community, and you know coming out of my sort of siloed collecting and and just having my mind blown, really, by the just the wealth of information and knowledge out there. One of the things I did stumble across, which I found incredibly appealing, was the concept of a of a of a focus collection. The idea is is to focus on on a certain thing. So it might be uh, you might focus on collecting a certain action figure, or you might focus on collecting something from a certain movie, or you might focus on collecting you know masks from a certain company. All these different ideas and angles from it. And one of the reasons why I think it really appealed to me is, well, first of all, the focus collectors who had already uh, you know, promoted their, their collections, 
fantastic and cosmetically look incredible where you'd have cabinets full of production and pre-production uh loose and packaged vintage kenner figures from the 70s and 80s that in itself had a sort of like a museum curated museum quality to it which i was which i found really attractive but also coming into the sort of the internet community and finding out all this stuff that people have been doing over the decades all the information that they've been gathering it seemed like a fast track way of getting sort of like an education from being siloed they didn't have access to the sort of uh, research and knowledge that people have developed before so you know i'm thinking about things like you know coins or bootlegs or card backs or you know your mint on cards your bubbles on the mint on cards the different type of hanger tabs the country of origin and you know all the loose figure variants the pre-production process or like the end-to-end process from design and pre-production and artwork all the way to the, the final figure on the peg and by putting together a focus it sort of like gave some kind of guidance and direction in which to sort of study this kind of stuff and have a much more sort of clear idea of what was going on in the hobby and this you know we're going back i mean i've been doing this now for about 10 11 years something like that and back at back back 10 years ago it was quite feasible to put together a focus i mean your return of the jedi cards for the most point were approximately you know for a really mint nice return of a jedi card you could be looking at 25 to 30 pounds so it's quite feasible but then the idea was to was to sort of sit back and think okay if i'm going to do this you know i need to do it for the right figure and that 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 is an exciting moment where you're sitting there and you're weighing up all the different reasons behind the figure that you choose you know i mean the, the first thing you, you, you think about is like oh well, i'd love to do luke skywalker in his farm boy outfit but now you have to give reason to that and you think well hang on a minute he was the, he was the first figure released so you're looking at your dt sabers your mail aways he's on a 12 back cards he's on a 12a 12b 12c i mean the 20 back cards just in kenna go up to ef variants maybe g variants maybe even more than that so then you start thinking, well, hang on a minute, if that, if that figure is £550 minimum, you know, on, on a Star Wars card and £250 minimum on a Jedi card or whatever it was at the time, you start thinking, actually, is this even affordable? And then, you know, how many other collectors are going to be looking at Luke Farnby? It's an extremely popular figure. So there's all these different reasons to, to, to consider. And, you know, I looked at sort of Yoda was an interesting figure to me. Attack Commander was another one. Greedo was another one. The Jawa was massively appealing, but I instantly ruled it out because, you know, you've got your Vinyl Cape Jawa variants there, and Jawa is almost like Boba Fett. It comes with its own tax. There's so many rare uh, versions of, of of the Jawa, where both loose and in packaging. So I sat there, and I'm lying in bed, sort of staring at my ceiling, trying to think of a good idea of which one to come up with. And then I had sort of like a, a eureka moment of picking the TIE Fighter pilot. And the reason I picked it was it was my first figure. And I've still got it. So it, it all made sense. It's like, if you're going to do this, do it for the very first figure that you got. And the great thing about it was it wouldn't commit me to the Star Wars carded figures, which at the, at the time I just thought was way too expensive for me to even go down, especially with the amount of variants involved. But it's the end of the line of The Empire Strikes Back. It gives us the opportunity to have Empire Strikes Back stuff, as well as Return of the Jedi and Trilogo and Power of the Force stuff as well. So it seemed like a lot more feasible than choosing something very early on in, on the Star Wars line or early on in the Empire Strikes Back line. Uh, another thing I think that appealed to me as well is when you start researching, when I started researching the TIE Fighter Pilot, that there was gaps in the knowledge. There was information there that, that I couldn't find out or didn't couldn't source or couldn't get any clear answers for. And that was also intriguing, which meant that I didn't just sort of like ride on the coattails of other people's work. I had to do my own work. And that, that in itself was appealing because I wanted to add something to the, you know, to the hobby and 
had that genuine excitement of trailblazing something and and you know a path of discovery sort of thing so so that's basically how we got to the tie fighter pilot it's new zuckers for lom an imperial tie fighter pilot three of 48 action figures from star wars the empire strikes back collection each sold separately and now from star wars new revenge of the jedi collection it's admiral akbar not available in any store but free with six proofs of purchase for many star wars action figures Details on specially marked packs of participating stores. Offer expires January 31st, 1983. New 4LOM, Zuckus, Imperial TIE Fighter Pilot, and other action figures each sold separately from Kenner Star Wars The Empire Strikes Back collection. One of the interesting things that came from researching the TIE Fighter Pilot was it was it was released in late 1982, I believe, just before The Empire Strikes Back moved on to Return of the Jedi. Uh, in the States, it was issued on a 47-back card, so it was the last Empire Strikes Back card before Return of the Jedi. But, you know, the, probably the, after Kenner in, in America, the probably the most second famous company that produces uh, vintage Star Wars figures was Palitoy in the UK. So obviously one of the first places I went to to find out what, what, what was available was, was Palitoy. You know, obviously it's a home nation as well. It's my, it's my own country, so I wanted to find out what was available in Palitoy. And I found that the TIE Fighter pilot was available on the Palitoy 45A and the Palitoy 45B, both Empire Strikes Back cards, but I couldn't find any Return of the Jedi. I thought, well, come on, that can't be that can't be right. They kind of missed out a major figure from the entire Return of the Jedi logo. And no matter how much I tried, the more I tried, I just couldn't find any information on this figure. I was able to find Kenner sort of 48-back uh, Return of the Jedi TIE Fighter pilot figures uh, with a 9-num Paddy Toy sticker on the back. So they were definitely imported into the country. But it just seemed like this glaring omission that something like Paddy Toy would not be issuing Return of the Jedi TIE Fighter pilots. Moving on from that sort of investigation, I looked at General Mills, who was sort of uh, issuing the figures in Germany, and I find out that they also had a 45-back General Mills Empire Strikes Back TIE Fighter pilot. But also, I couldn't find any Return of the Jedi ones. So there was a symmetry there. And I just, that, that really stuck out to me, something that was quite interesting. So I continued ser- you know, searching the best I could, and, you know, it's, it's all possible that you could just miss these kind of things. And... You know, just because I haven't seen them doesn't mean that they're not being traded, you know, on a a daily basis like. But I was quite heavily into sort of monitoring the market and looking for these. Not so much anymore, but back a few years ago, definitely. So I couldn't actually find one at all or any evidence of one. I had here that the Return of the Jedi did actually appear on the General Mills card, but I hadn't seen anything about it. I couldn't find any examples of it. I couldn't find any card backs. But uh, back in, I think it was February... Uh, I was on Facebook, and I wasn't on the Facebook page where this was posted. Someone had commented on it. A friend of mine had commented on it from Germany. And because he, apparently because he had commented on it, it appeared in my thread. And there was a picture of about maybe 30, 40 carded figures that were laid out. And they were laid on top of each other, so you could only see the bubble. And I looked at it, and I just gave it a quick scan, and I recognized there was a TIE Fighter pilot there with a tri-logo bubble on a single logo return of the jedi card so this meant this meant three things straight away first thing this is the first time i've seen a trilogo bubble on a return of the jedi card so instantly that's a massive success because it's it's something new secondly it could prove that there was a return of the jedi tie fighter pilot on the pally toy card or there was a return of the jedi figure on the uh general mills card so we had all the all this genuine excitement of sort of like um at least we know that there's a tri-logo bubble on a single logo card, but what is it? You know, and is it real? 
So I contacted the um, the seller who was in Germany, uh, and he's got a web page. I think it's called Strong Vision. And I contacted him immediately and said, you know, what's, you know, what's happening with this card? You know, I'm quite quite interested in this. And he said, uh, unfortunately, it had sold 24 hours before, but he was kind enough to uh, send the pictures of it. So the bubble had detached, but it was the original bubble. So you know, it's it's original bubble figure and backing card, and it proved to be a 45 back. Return of the Jedi General Mills card. So it proved the existence of the General Mills card. And I was like, well, there's no problem. I was just happy to have the evidence that it existed and I could finally say, wow, it did, it did exist. I hear rumors, way more rumors about General Mills, uh, Return of the Jedi, TIE Fighter Pilot than any Paddy's toy. But still, there was I just never had the evidence in hand. But then he was he was like, well, I've got a, got a carded version as well. And he said, I think it's the only carded example. I'd like to see some pictures of that as well. So he sent us a few pictures and then offered it to us, but it was well outside my budget. So I'm going to you know, stop my monologue a sec, maybe just push this out to the team. I was wondering if we could just do a quick roundtable. Any ideas what you think a Return of a Jedi General Mills TIE Fighter pilot on the card would be? Absolutely no idea whatsoever. I'm glad you said that, because I have <laughs> no clue. Just do. I mean, I suppose it depends how... how uh... Did a lot of people in the hobby know how rare mm. it was or was of people looking at this thinking, I mean, if I was looking at it, I wouldn't have known that. I would have just thought, oh, there's a Return of the Jedi, TIE Fighter Pilot, oh, it's General Mills. I wouldn't have clicked to me that they'd never been seen before. So I suppose it's um, that knowledge. If you just asked me how much, I would have said 300 quid. But with what you've just told us, I'm going to add a naught to the end of that <laughs> because uh, rarity goes a long way in this hobby. Well, it does if there's more than two people interested in it for a start you know but we, we've seen other stuff in the past which our friends have bought which you know appear to have been one-offs which have just gone completely under the radar people are like well why is that gone um for that or why isn't that worth more when there's really popular things you know carded yak faces which are not 10 a penny but you know fetching a real premium so i don't know it's, it's supply and demand isn't it i guess can this one go under the radar yeah i think if you're uh if you the, the, the paddy toy collectors are interested in it because it's the only version you're going to be able to get of the tri-logo bubble on what essentially is a Paddy Toy front-looking card with a German back on it. The, the, the card is very similar to the 45B Paddy Toy card. So there's some certain hardcore Paddy Toy collectors are interested in it. And anyone who's interested in General Mills or, or card back collecting, they, they'll, they'll be aware of it. But, you know, there's a hundred, you know, what was it, 97-odd figures or whatever, so that it's quite easy for it to be diluted and go under the radar. But he did offer it to me, and he wanted seven thousand euros for it, um, which is which would be great. But you know, if I stand it up in the cabinet next to my two different forty-five B Paddy toy cards, you wouldn't really know the difference except for the Jedi logo. So I was like, it's a bit too much. I can I couldn't justify spending that kind of money. It's 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 too much. But at the same time, it was fantastic to um, it was fantastic to to see it. It's like, wow, and it, and you know, he was. He said that it's the only one he's ever seen, and and this guy is churning out a, a lot of fantastic, you know, rare uh, collectibles from all different sort of uh, toy uh, toy franchises and licenses. So, yeah, I took his word on it, and I think yeah, it is uh, it is pretty rare. Uh, but I contacted the, the the person who bought the the bubble and the card back, uh, just have a chat about it to say like, you know, have you found any more of these or anything like that? And he said, yeah, actually, I've purchased this to upgrade from my card back. So I've got the bubble now and the figure to go with it. But I've got the card back and I've had that a couple of years. Would you be interested in buying that? So I ended up buying the card back off him. 
So there was a silver lining at the end of the day, and I was like, "Well, nice. that, that that is that, that that's fantastic." But then, about uh, maybe a month ago, on the cardback Facebook page, I think it's called Cardboard Cardbacks and Boxes or something like that, another one turned up. So they are out there, but they're then they're, they're not they're not easy to find. That's for sure. You know, there's there's a couple Tie Fighter Pilot cardbacks uh, that, I've, that I've managed to pick up. Where you're looking, I've I've seen more pre-production proofs. That have, that have gone live, you know, where people can buy them online, not sort of backdoor deals sort of thing. I've seen more of, of proofs of certain types than I have of, say, the PBP, ESB, TIE Fighter pilot car back, the uh, Return of the Jedi Clipper TIE Fighter pilot car back, just insanely difficult to find. You know, one or two in the last 10 years have, have popped up, you know, not, not that many at all, which is a lot more than... You know, some of the proofs that I've seen come up for sale. Mate, it's a great focus. It's an awesome figure. How, how do you feel from a focus collector point of view now? I know, you know, people can go into sort of peaks and troughs with regards to their collecting, and that's completely cool. But are, are you are you cooling on TIE Fighter Pilot a little bit more now? Or if you got to a stage where you think, well, apart from that, I've, or I've almost got everything? Or where are you with your TIE Fighter Pilot focus collecting journey? Uh, I just refuse to pay for it. So, you know, the stuff that I was picking up 10, 5, 10 years ago, you know, I was happy to pay the price for it. I'm not happy to pay the price. So if I was picking up common Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi Kenner figures for 50, 60 quid maximum, and now they're 250, 350 pounds, I'm not paying that for it. I I think it's uh, it would be insane to. I, I wouldn't, I don't have any joy in paying full price or, or, or three times the price for something I just don't think is that rare. So I've kind of cooled on it a little bit, but there's, you know, I was fortunate to pick it up when I did, and we were able to amass quite a collection. If the prices were still as they were five, ten years ago, there's another two figures I would have done. I would like to have done a Star Wars figure and a Jedi figure to go with the Empire figure and do three runs. That would have been for me amazing, but I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't do that now because I'm not paying that that money. But, it, you know, it's nice because every now and then something does come along. I've still got, I, I dug out the card backs today to do some research for this podcast. And there's some really common card backs I still haven't picked up. So I can still have fun with it. But we were picking up loose TIE Fighter pilots for, you know, I, I showed you the, a box of loose TIE Fighter pilots earlier. Picking them up for, you know, the beaters for £1 to £3 each. You know, we was, I was going to a convention and buying like a, 10 TIE Fighter pilots you know, for 30 quid. What so, was your plan for that? Um... So the plan was to use it as so like um because the idea at the same time of coming into focus collect and people would introduce me to army building which I thought was quite interesting but I, I was gonna I was thinking about having them as a either as an army building shelf or to use them as sort of like the framework to go around the cabinet the, you know the size and backing of the cabinet which you would have your then your carded figures within so like you know almost like a panels but figures. So there must be like a few hundred TIE fighter pilots in that tub you shared online with us the other day. I mean, there must be some variants in there. Is that a temptation to go through and just start, you know, looking through and cataloging the loose ones? Yeah. So with the with the TIE fighter pilot, I'm not going down into, I know this since I've left loose collecting because I've pretty much got everything I wanted. I know they've gone down into subcategories of which factory was producing these figures. I, I only go as far as uh, the COO. And there's only about four or five different COOs on the TIE Fighter Pilot, and 99.9% of TIE Fighter Pilots are the made in Hong Kong one. So one last question then, because you shared in your blog 
the photograph of your original TIE fighter pilot figure that you had as a child, if that was on your desk and you knocked it off into that tub of hundreds of beta TIE fighter pilots, would you be able to pick it out? Yeah, I would. It's probably the most played one out of all of them, mate. <laughs> and um, it's actually what, what I did is I, I've actually got that cased. So there's a couple of them I've got cased. There's some odd variants, like there's um, like a Lily Leddy TIE fighter pilot that's been, it's got the arms and legs of an Emperor's Royal Guard, but it's been painted as a TIE fighter pilot. You know, there's all kinds of weird, bizarre stuff you come across, or ones with like, I've got one with an unpainted uh, hand, and it's all bits and bits and bobs of crazy stuff. But it's not the same. I mean, you, you used to be able to go on the forums uh, ten years ago, and wacky stuff used to come up all the time. I just don't. Maybe I'm just not spending as much time on on the Facebook groups or anything. But yeah, but that 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 one figure just as soon as I thought Tie Fighter Pilot is the first figure you ever got, and you've still got it. I mean, everything lined up. And I think it's a popular figure as well with collectors. You know, it's a nice sculpted figure. The car back is, is, is good fun. And, you know, and there's also, you can do offshoots from it as well. You could do like the TIE Fighter Kenner, you know, toy. You could do the die casts from it as well. You could do the micro collection from it as well. There's, you know, bits and bobs of pre-production stuff you can, you can do from it. Um, yeah, it's been an exciting journey. But one of the exciting things was just not having that information where if you went to some of the more popular figures like the Jawa, there was a lot of information about it straight away. But the TIE Fighter Pilot, I couldn't find out if there was no Paddy Toy. I couldn't find out if there was no POC uh, or what the status was with the PVP. And the PVP journey is probably more interesting than the General Mills story, but I'll probably leave that for another time. It is a great character. I know we want to move on. But I, would th- I think one of the reasons why it's so good is because, you know, Star Wars, Empire, Jedi, in all of them... And then very much part of also uh, Force Awakens. You know, when we heard, when you saw that trailer, when you heard the sound, when you heard the sound of the twin ion engine sort of struggling as it then left the hangar, it, it, it's a classic. It's a it's a real sort of staple of Star Wars, isn't it? The TIE Fighter pilot uh, and the TIE Fighter itself. I, I just think you, you chose so well. Um, really, uh, I really do enjoy that figure a lot, mate. I'd like to do it all again with another figure, but not at today's prices. Because <laughs> it's so much fun. I don't know. I mean, it's not for everyone. Everyone might just look at a cabinet with the same figure in and consider it boring. But I, I went online the other day and I saw a someone had, uh, a, a massive FX7 collection. Now, I've never been interested in the FX7 figure at all. I find it quite boring. But when I saw that collection, the way it was curated like a museum piece with 30 or 40 card bags in there, pre-production stuff, artwork, all that kind of stuff. It looked phenomenal. Absolutely phenomenal. It went from like a, a figure I wasn't interested in into, you know, something I would easily consider if I, you know, I'd love to have that collection. It was incredible. I think your collection is amazing anyway. I'm sure there's plenty of posts about it online. Uh, I will urge people to go and check out the, the blog post. There's some images in there to go with that story. It's a brilliant story as well. Go and check it over on Generation Skywalker. Just click on the blog section and you'll find it about halfway down. It is titled A Collector's Journey. Gron, what I'd love to do with you, actually, when when we release this podcast, when this comes live, maybe for the seven days that follow it, maybe um, each day, just maybe one item from your uh, tie pilot focus with a very small paragraph. Be nice for a week to have a look at the tie pilot and see a few different bits out of it. Yeah, that's possible. That's definitely possible. Wonderful. Well, thank you, Grant. Brilliant stuff, mate. Trained to fly the Imperial Navy's full range of TIE fighter models, these sinister-looking pilots were subjected to intense, self-seeking training. 
In fact, only 10% of TIE fighter cadets actually graduated with commissions, making them prideful yet arrogant. But looking past their notorious superiority complex, each took great pride in their respective TIE fighters, even though they lacked both hyperdrives and deflector shields. Moreover, at the expense of their own survival, TIE fighter pilots were conditioned to complete their assignments at all costs. This is what made the Imperial Navy one of the most competitive corps in the entire Galactic Empire. So, while reinforced helmets and self-contained flight suits, which were worn in the event of system malfunctions, gave them an unremarkable appearance, TIE fighter pilots not only took great pleasure in flying, but they were incredibly agile, fearless, expressive, and all too willing to make great sacrifices. Right, so we're going to go over to Jez next, who um, has been delving into the droid factory because this was a, a real childhood favourite of his and uh, he's, he's a bit obsessed with it as a toy. <laughs> <laughs> I love how you set these things up. Jez, right, you know nothing about the droid factory, so uh, look into it. But what do you know about it now, Jez? Well, a little bit more. In fact, if we go back to the beginning of this um, podcast, you said, oh, I'm here with a lot of experts today. And I thought you were going to follow that up with, and Jez, uh, and I nearly did that myself, because I do feel that I am, you know, as I said, the um, idiot abroad sometimes when it comes to Star Wars type stuff. However, I have been looking at uh, the droid factory and pretty much the differences, obviously, from a playset point of view, when Star Wars first brought these out, you know, we had um, Death Star, Cantina, Land of the Jowers, but there was the droid factory. And it's something which has never really appealed to me. I looked at it and I just thought that's just a lot of mess of stuff which just can, uh, can get lost. Uh, so many different parts to it. And then again, it's one of those things where Kenner and Palatoy brought out different versions. And we'll come on to more of that in a minute and, and why. And then the differences between them, because there's not actually a great deal spoken about the Palatoy ones. I think majority of people have focused a lot more on, on the Kenner in the past. Before I go into it too much, I just want to actually ask from all of you, just you know, one at a time, do you own a droid factory? Uh, first of all, Mark, do you do you have one of these? I had a Palatoy one. I had an unused Palatoy droid factory sold it mainly because I just didn't box art. Um, right, ge- okay. Yeah. Ge- generally, I, I always think Palatoy box art is, is better than Kenner box art. It's in, in terms of the uh, droid factory, no, I, I, I have to go with the Kenner one. Uh, right, before we move on to anyone else, that was something which I was going to come on to. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So two different size boxes, so you, you have the difference between the Kenner and the Palatoy. But yeah, you're absolutely right. Palatoy normally do very good. You know, we've got this lovely Star Wars racetrack with uh, with the Palatoy one. So 1979, they released both either side of the pond, and uh, so obviously in Star Wars livery. But the, the Palatoy one, I don't know if you've, if you've got a, a photograph in front of you, uh, Mark, but could you just describe it and against the sort of falls and or pros and cons with regards to how that compares against the Kenner one because the Kenner one without wanting to sort of pre-brief the brief really did focus on the toy itself whereas I do think Palatoy lost the mark with their marketing. I, I think the Palatoy one it, it, it was really very clear as to what it was and what you could do with it it was on a black background on a black box sort of typical sort of 70s kid on there sort of leaning over the base and, and they did differ. It wasn't really a play set, the Palatoy version. It was more of a, a sort of Lego set almost, build a droid. But none of that really came across on the packaging. Uh, it wasn't very descriptive. It was very flat, very dull looking, whereas the Kenner one looked more like a play set because it had the um, the arm element to it and the base was completely different. So yeah, the, the, 
particle one really just fall flat for me. Yeah, so fundamentally what we've got here is a playset where, yes, you could build your own droid in a droid factory. And as you said, yeah, so the Kenner one has the arm. It, it's got a crane feature to it. So that's the main thing. And people are saying, well, yeah, the, uh, the Palatoy one didn't. What did the Palatoy one have, though? What, in terms of the actual contents? It, it had its its hoist, its winch conveyor belt on the left-hand side, which is lost on so many people because what Palatoy did is they took actually some of the constituent parts out of the crane itself. So the pivot part of the crane, if you think about how you can uh, draw a hangman on a piece of paper where you've got your vertical and then your horizontal, the pivot point which those joins those two points, that was actually then turned into the wind-up winch on the Palatoy version. And the hook which then came down from the crane itself, that was also reused by Palatoy uh, to have the hook at the bottom of the of the winch device. So they were reproducing different things. Also, what you had with the Palatoy one is a vacuum-formed plastic base, far cheaper than the more solid, stable one which Kenner had used. And that, again, one of the uh, thought processes to the to having the uh, not having the crane anymore is because the base just wouldn't have been up to the job. However, you can see it that if you had the Palatoy one, yes, it's got a little winding mechanism where you've got a winch and you can have one of your wheel droids or tracked droids pulled up the little conveyor belt instead of having the crane device. But what Palatoy did do, and what they did do very well, is that the stickers were increased massively. Rather than just have one sticker on the side of the Kenner one, which pretty much looked like uh, the Kenner one had been completely forgotten about stickers. So apart from the R2, and we'll come on to that in a minute, the Palatoy one knocked it out of the park with regards to stickers and inlay trays, etc for all your different parts. So two completely different trays. It's not just the same tray with or without a uh, a crane. Fundamentally, the two were, were massively different. And um, yeah, so same number of parts. So you can make, you know, hundreds of different varieties of, of droids. Both of them came with their own blueprints, be it Kenner or, or Palatoy um, specific blueprints, where you can have the different droids or put them together for one big monster droid. But yeah, absolutely, mate. I, I, I don't blame you for saying that the uh, the Kenner box art is far better. I mean, if you looked at it from a percentage point of view, when you were looking at the uh, the Palatoy, the actual droid factory itself probably only takes up about 20 to tw- probably about 20% of the available printing area of the box. Whereas on the Kenner one, it zoomed right in and it's just the droid factory with some Jawas, C-3PO and R2. Then on the later edition with uh, when Empire came out, both on the Kenner American one and the Kenner Canada one, you also had Obi-Wan Kenobi and Luke Skywalker. Um, so, so yeah, much, much better that you could actually see what was going on with the droid factory. Guys, I'm going to just offer it up to, uh, to, to Craig Grant and Stu. I mean, what are your thoughts on this? And did you guys have these? Uh, I've got two box examples. I've got the blue one and the yellow one. Um, okay. I, I didn't have one as a kid, but they did appeal. And that was purely down to the, the ad, which I'm sure we'll talk about. The ad made it look way better than the box and the actual <laughs> thing. Because as Mark says, it wasn't a playset. It was... It was veering into that construction toy, not a craft toy, but it, it was it looked like a lot of fun. 
the ad appeared in Star Wars Weekly and Looking and things like that. And it's very, uh, it's a very simple one. It's, it's a third of, of an ad that's advertising the Cantina and Land of the Jowers. But it's a super clear line drawing of all the bits you get laid out. So it does a real good job where the box fails. So it's a, it's a super crisp, almost technical drawing. You can sort of see all the bits on there. And I'm just going to read out the uh, the, the speech bubbles of, uh, of C-3PO just to demonstrate how ahead of its time it was. This is the new Palatoy droid factory. You can create hundreds of different looking robots and you can even build five at a time i'm sold r2 come away from there before you get yourself recycled craig can you also do the speech bubble for r2d2 as well please yes just one moment let me prepare myself la 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 (laughs) (laughs) did you enjoy that yeah perfect isn't that a good ad though i mean it, it did it sold it to me yeah, and if you, if you think about, you know, back in the day with various different things, you know, Meccano was huge. If you remember, you know, the old sort of spanner and socket elements of the Meccano Lego, it was trying to sort of mesh all those different things together. I can't, quite frankly, I can't recall this at, at all. And that may well have been because it had the original Star Wars release and then the Empire, and it didn't come out on Jedi, which is, I think it was during Empire, definitely into Jedi, when I then started to collect more as a child. Um, so maybe it just wasn't in the shops as much when I was um, actively collecting. But there we go. I mean, from a price point point of view, they were twelve ninety nine or so initially in America. And um, lo and behold, apparently around in the UK parts, it was around about seven to eight pounds, usually around about eight pounds. And then obviously that would have been discounted has gone on. So you would have said, yeah, maybe about four times, four to five times the price of a carded figure. Yeah, it would have definitely been something which you wouldn't have been able to get with your normal pocket money per se, um, or, or, you know, a weekend treat. But I don't think it would necessarily be something which you would have got for Christmas or, or for your birthday, you know, as opposed to the, uh, the the very grand Rebel Transport. I need another leg. It's Kenner's new Star Wars droid factory that you put together to make your own droids. Jawa action figures sold separately. Hey, I made R2-D2. You can make your own droids or follow the droid maker blueprints. By switching different tops, arms and legs, you can make hundreds of droids, up to five at a time. The movable crane swings parts where you need them. You can even make droids with wheels. The Star Wars Droid Factory. Jawa action figures sold separately. New from Kenner. Stu, do you have any of these in your uh, in your garage, or or is there room for a uh, droid factory in your life? Uh, no recollection of them until back into collecting. I've never owned one. Uh, the appeal's not there for me. I don't, perhaps because it's got no nostalgia to me. But I think I've had a couple of the little bits and pieces come through. But um, no, and not not high on my agenda to be totally honest with you, Jed. And Grant. Yeah, I didn't know about this till you know, recollecting in the 90s. I think the, um, I remember the Paddy Toy uh, Droid Factory was a big deal at the time. So uh, getting a hands on one of those w- w- was a priority. And also because um, it was the opportunity to get that three-legged R2, which was also a yeah. major deal at the time, because that was quite obviously, when you're a kid, you know, and you didn't know that the uh, Droid Factory existed, the idea was, you know, wouldn't it be amazing if they did a three-legged R2? And then to find out that they actually did, that was then a priority focus to go and pick one of those up. I've got oh. both of them. I have. I've, I've picked up the one, picked up the Palisoy one in the nineties, which is like a blue base one. Um, right. And that, that 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 was a big deal back then. I think it cost me. It was boxed and it cost about seventy five pound, which was a lot uh, back then. And since then, picked up uh, an American one as well. So yeah, I mean, I really like it. I think. They must have been struggling at the time to come out with enough product. And I think it was really sort of creative of them to to fast track this sort of like like you say sort of Meccano hybrid uh, Star Wars toy. I, I like it. I, 
I like it a lot better than when they reissued the Jabba Dungeon for Jedi. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so a couple uh, a, a minor tweaks and changes and then, yeah, the Jabba's Dungeon later re-release. But it was actually only, only very recently that I, I saw the conveyor belt winch option and the fact that they were just completely reproducing these or, or retooling, reusing these parts, I thought was brilliant. I quite like that winch option. Because in the past, I've seen it in a very non-dynamic role. I've just seen, there you go, a tray with some bits in it. But you can actually use that very much like you can use the crane. Yeah, Craig had mentioned about the blue and then the uh, the yellow one, which I, I think the blue one came out first. The yellow one is slightly harder to find. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I had always thought that the Kenner one looked, looked right, I think. A combination and we'll come on to that in a minute a combination of the best of both worlds would be amazing but yeah for me kenner one i think does definitely get it um i like the fact that it came with the blueprints and the way in which you could you could have the different droids i mean some of these droids were, were pretty out they were pretty wacky so you had um let me think you had you had um articulated arms you had tank tracks you had uh pivoted arms uh, you had wheeled droids and there was one of the droids actually that you could put the r2d2 on and uh and move the arms inwards so it could securely carry the R2. So there you go, you could actually pull that up or use the crane. So yeah, the droids, it was just, again, it was part of your imagination, wasn't it? And I just thought that that's, that was pretty cool. Let's just talk about that three-legged R2 though, because yeah, it's one of those things where, is it part of a loose run? Is it something which you think, I really, really need one of those? Because the price for a three-legged R2 has absolutely skyrocketed. I mean, before I pause uh, for, you, for your comebacks, I remember Rich Hutchinson bought one at Farthest From f- for a very rela- uh, for a very reasonable, it was about 35 quid, it was about 40 quid um, a few years ago. And these things are now exchanging hands for over 200 pounds. So um, there's definitely a market for them. But w- what are your thoughts? Do you need to have a three-legged R2 to have a, a full vintage run? Yes. No. The, re- the, re- the reason I say yes is I think it falls into the Blue Snaggletooth category, isn't it? Which is another pack-in action figure. So I- I- I've got I've got it linked with the Blue Snaggletooth I have, and I think it's the uh, it's a it's a, or the Dianoga as well, or the Probot. Do you think a Dianoga should be in a loose run? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Sure. <laughs> I think I think you're dismantling playsets to be able to put those together, and I think all of them belong in their respective places. I get the blue snag a little bit more. But I suppose it is the same thing. Thing really, actually. But uh, I agree. I think you know you see those in the loose collection. That's a that's a playset that's missing an essential part. I think if you if you follow that line of logic, then the little skeleton inside the Jabba uh, throne thing is is equally part of a your figure run not all droid factories survive most of the droid factories are missing pieces it's a really difficult without taking it out of a, a complete box to actually build one and get all the pieces especially the hoses and especially the steel rods is really difficult so i think it's all right there's loads of baggy dinogas isn't yeah. there and yeah. um it is easier far easier to get dinoga i mean they're they're selling yeah ten a penny at farthest from for example and echo no doubt i think the most recently, I've seen them probably gone up to about forty to forty-five pound now for a, for a Dinoga. I mean, the R2, the three-legged one. Yeah, if the price was down, if it was down closer to what Rich bought one for, I might say, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, one belongs in your collection. But I, th- I think I'm firmly in there. If it, it's got different than the blue snaggletooth, though. I mean, do you want to put a blue snaggletooth in the box? No, I think I've got, I've got the blue snaggletooth in my collection now. I'm looking at it because I like the the curation part of my collection where I can say, oh, yeah, you know, this one, and, I, and I've got it next to the red snaggletooth. And I like the fact that I've got those two there. 
and if anyone asked then i could tell them the difference whereas yeah oh yeah well this this uh three-legged r2 came in a droid factory which didn't really know about and it is, it's all right uh, but i don't have the rest of it whereas it, the, my blue snaggletooth is a complete blue snaggletooth whereas the three-legged r2 isn't a complete droid factory what are your thoughts, Mark? Because it's kind of, I don't know if it's 50-50 at the moment. I, I don't know where Craig's at on that. Absolutely. It wasn't on a card. And I consider loose runs, figures that were available on cards. If you want to add and uh, sort of embellish a loose collection with, like you say, Blue Snaggletooth or, you know, Dianoga, three-legged R2, then fine, no problem. Don't don't have a problem with it, but I wouldn't consider it part of a, a loose one, no. Right, okay, fine. So you're, you're a carded or nothing. Myself and Stu are definitely like, well, we kind of like the Blue Snaggletooth, but we're not so sure about the three-legged R2, even though it does look cool. Um, Craig, where, where are you on this? It's it's funny, isn't it? Because I would say uh, Blue Snaggletooth does, Three-Legged R2 doesn't. I think because it is a part of the kit, you know, maybe it's the fact that it is, it does come to you as as parts, you know, the head, the arms, three legs, the body. It, it's part of a construction set and it feels like it belongs on that tray in its proper place. Okay. So Grant, you know, it's, this is Star Wars, man. There's something for everyone. and We, we don't have to all agree with each other. Um, so I'm, I'm, I, oh. I, I respect your opinion. Okay, but thoughts then? Let's 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 branch that out to the Probot and Salacious Crumb. Oh, no, I, I don't. I'm not interested. In, I love the Probot. It's part of a playset, but I wouldn't. I wouldn't separate it from its playset. It's the same. I mean, you're you're throwing the Dianoga in a loose run, so that means you're throwing in the Wampa, the Tonton, the Rancor, and Jabba in a loose run as well, yeah? Because they're all creatures. Um, in a jig bag. Possibly, yeah. <laughs> Your face. <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to protest more Star Wars. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's. I mean, I I do like I do like it. However, would you then, if you said right, yeah, got my three-legged R2, then we go into variants. Now I've heard about variants. Now I know that Rich, when he was talking about his R2, he was like, right, is is the three-legged R2 a Palatoy one or a Kenner one? Because if you think about it, and if you go back to what I said earlier on about the differences and the, and the massive differences between the sets. Well, Kenner had a very small sticker sheet with the sticker which goes on the left-hand side of the uh, Kenner tray and the R2-D2. And then Palatoy had completely re-engineered and, and different stickers. So therefore, it's a completely different sticker sheet. And I believe that the sheen is slightly different. So to a trained eye, not mine, but to a trained eye, you can look at the... Uh, um, three-legged R2s and say that's a Palatoy one or that's a Kenner one and uh, yeah that's a that's a, a nice little fact thanks very much Rich. Doesn't, doesn't one of them have a wobbly line? Did I, if I'm, am I remembering yeah, that right? Oh, oh now you've yeah, got something in the back Palatoy, of my mind. Palatoy sticker is different because the top blue line on the sticker in the middle and the front of the, 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 the R2 is uh, wobbly on the Kenner one it's straight. Also the material which the sticker sheet is made out of is slightly different. The Palatoy ones have got almost like a greasy feel to them whereas the Kenner ones don't. The, the, the Palatoy ones are notorious for going discoloured over time so finding a white one is is, is very very tough because I've seen them even discolour on the uh, unused sheets. 
while we're talking about stickers, can we just acknowledge some of the wit and whimsy of the Palatoy stickers with their little, with their world building that's going on? So they've got a little sign that says authorised personnel only and little kind of droid car parks that say droid one and droid two. <laughs> and then on the side, yeah. there's a little door that says danger, laser welding, a tiny, tiny little door with a massive Ferguson logo on it. <laughs> Does this mean now that they're not canon because they're not in Urabesh and, and you know, it's, it's obviously in English, but I, I think the stickers are great because you're absolutely right. It is world building and it does give it that more of a production line feel rather than an unfinished feel, which I very much get from the Kenner. So um, I do feel like I, I prefer what's going on on the Palatoid tray for sure, but just prefer the Kenner box. But yeah, loving the stickers. What about the Takara wind up walking R2? Does that include? It was on a no. card. It was on a card. Is that a, oh, yeah, that's a fair one. Not my card. No, absolutely not. No, that, 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 that. To me, that is a different thing altogether. That That's not even an action figure as far as I'm concerned. That's like a novelty thing. I would never class that as a, an action figure. I was just looking on Tracker in the last five years. I mean, these things are, are popular. They are selling loose. It, right, so this is on Tracker. So it's essentially just keep an eye on eBay. And then it's had a little look at some on Facebook and a few of the larger auction houses. Loose, 364 have gone. The Kenner A-Box, 388. So the original Star Wars Kenner one uh, sold loads. And then it gets harder to find. So in the last five years, Palatoid Star Wars, just 42. And Kenner Empire Strikes Back, 31. But it's the Kenner Canada Empire Strikes Back, which all of a sudden you go from age four above to age five and above, just nine in the last five years. So these are getting out there loose but boxed Kenner the most popular in the Star Wars range so if you've got a couple of Palatoy ones uh, yeah you're doing very well really not um, that far. interestingly enough it really stuck out that uh, over the last two weeks from the same seller on Facebook had two Empire Strikes Back toy factories I don't know if they were Canadian I'll have to go and check they were mm. about £700 each wowzers because yeah on uh, on tracker <laughs> they are nowhere near that i mean so in the last five years there was one which has gone over um a mint and sealed box star wars one which has gone for thirteen hundred dollars and that was in in 2018 then the next most expensive one sold in italy again star wars one complete it didn't say whether or not it was mint and sealed box or not that was a thousand dollars and then we've got Germany, 700 euros, which is about 600 pounds, and then 537. So in the last five years, there's only been two which have been more expensive than 700. They're saying that the average price of them is just 69. Now, if I remove, uh, if, I, if I took loose out of that equation, and uh, so just got rid of the two loose options and just said, right, here we go. And this is what I love about Tracker. So I'm just going for boxed ones now. Yeah, the average price of a boxed droid factory is 94 pounds now i'm sure that's not necessarily complete but even if it didn't have the r2 that's uh it's not 700 pounds worth so, so just did a quick scan of the facebook pages i found the canadian empire strikes back droid factory box 200 dollars. nice Oof. rare as hen's teeth that Oof. hang on a second that can't be complete because people are spending more than that on three-legged r2s 
Haven't they? Um, I don't know. I mean, I've got no idea what I'm talking about here, but have they sort of redone the Droid Factory at Disney with sort of like a Droid Builder? Yeah. yeah. And I love it. And this, you know, earlier on, what I said about, oh, it'd be great if you could have the best of both worlds. So yeah, it, I mean, I, I can share with you some images. But what they've done. So this, um, if you had asked me this question a couple of years ago, like you know, have they remade the Droid Factory? Then yeah, we would have just said no, uh, and there was nothing else to come out. However, yes, yeah, so this was um, came to Star Wars Celebration in Chicago. There was the first look of this. And then in April 19, it came out. Um, so this is exclusive for Disneyland Star Wars Galaxy's Edge. So if you imagine a box which just looks almost like someone from The Apprentice would have designed it because there's no big Star Wars graphics on it. It just says the Droid Factory. And there's just a, a tiny little Star Wars logo on the rear. It's fantastic because, yes, it's got a crane. It's got various different things going on it. It's got doorway, arch, water basin, a water basin for cold water, water basin for warm water, and a, a rack and a drying area. And also, this this is just... I mean, you can tell the excitement in my in my voice now, but colour changing gonk droids, depending on whether or not you've got them in warm water or cold water. So they could then act as spy droids because you can quickly disguise them into a different colour. So, yeah, you, you've also got you guys know that I love the Imperial Troop Transport with the sounds. This thing's got four sounds as well. So it, it's got lights, it's got sounds, it's got a little drying area which look like they've got fans. I mean, you, you can turn the fans by hand, they're, they're hand, they're not powered, so water can just drip down. But two little baths for your droids, you imagine there, C-3PO in his oil bath, I think that's what it's meant to look like. It's a great piece, it's far better than any of the other modern things which I've seen uh, have come out, certainly better than the gantry in uh, Bespin. And it came out, it was it was around about $49. But the, the gonk droid colour changing in its own right is, is brilliant. I think, you know, you, you go somewhere like Galaxy's Edge and you're always going to pay through the nose for a bottle of water. So for $49.99 to actually get a decent uh, playset, I think that's really, really good. The first time I've ever seen it. It's just great. It, it's got everything. It's got the best bits. Obviously, what you, what you don't have are hundreds of bits there. So it, it is just the play set itself. Three tools plugged into the warm water basin, one colour-changing gonk droid. It's very creative. And, it, and and you can see its lineage back to these, these vintage play sets as well, can't you? I mean, it would be wrong of me to talk about the droid factory and not mention what could have been because uh, those... Uh, crazy engineers at Kenner were looking at um, having another pop of this during the sort of Empire Strikes Back era on uh, on an item which was ultimately uh, didn't make it to production. But they were looking at Droid Factory 2, which was uh, a concept with wind-up motors and, and different elements. It's kind of a cross between a Droid Factory and a vehicle maintenance energizer. I think that's how I'm looking at it anyway, the way in which it was put together. Uh, again, vacuum form base. But it, when I was going through my notes, I was like, yeah, definitely kind of vintage ma- uh, maintenance energizer um, vibe to it. But with the wind up motors, it was really taking the droid factory to the next level with more sort of engineering and ingenuity. But from uh, from memory, what you were looking at, the original price of twelve ninety nine dollars, I think they were looking at something like four times as much 
um, for this uh, for this re-engineered one. And just ultimately, it was a case of no one's going to spend that when they can buy something which was actually in the movies. You know, the, the, it was now getting comparable on a price point to uh, to an Atap or Millennium Falcon. So it was just, yeah, no, we're uh, unfortunately we're going to shelve that. But on the Star Wars Collectors Archive website, there's some uh, yeah some fascinating imagery, which um, hopefully on the enhanced version of this podcast we can uh, we can add for you. I just wanted to, to flag up the stealth droid factory that came out in uh, in line with Attack of the Clones. So there were three elements and this kind of passed me by a little bit. So there was a, a section of the droid factory assembly line that uh, that was in the movie that came with the arena playset on Geonosis. So it was around the back, there was a little bit, but I didn't quite realise that, that it was modular and it fitted with a couple of, of uh, deluxe figures. So one of them was a little crane that swapped the battle droid's head with the, the C-3PO head. The bit I'm really I, I just didn't know about until I was researching this. So this is the deluxe super battle droid builder. Okay. And I think this is brilliant. If I'd have seen this as a kid I would have loved this. And it's very much in keeping with what we're talking about. This uh, constructor set, this this sort of replay type element that melds with your, your Star Wars figures. So what it was was a sort of super battle droid torso and you got a tub of play-doh with it and what you would do is you would you would get this play-doh and you'd sort of smush it into the the framework of the battle droid uh, and there was a press that came in the in the pack it was like a carded pack and you would press the press down it would mold the play-doh trim off the excess and you'd have this play-doh half play-doh half action figure super battle droid was anyone else aware of this this just completely passed me by no nope. 2002 super battle droid builder with droid factory assembly mold what a cool little thing so cool the, you're the, now gonna buy it it does it does look yeah crackers. You know, the play-doh's called uh star wars quick steel sort of bluey metallic-y play-doh to to match the, the frame of the battle droid that is the business that's ace i'm surprised the skinner's not got that in his collection somewhere he's gonna get it now he's gonna hunt it down do you think there's a there's a link there where george lucas looked at that that kenner droid factory and thought well one day i'm gonna put natalie portman in a movie and have her jumping around one of those It'd be nice to think so wouldn't it and that is all i have on the droid factory uh, am i gonna rush out and get one i don't think i'm gonna rush out and get one um, because most of them out there now don't have a uh, a three-legged R2 because people keep on taking them on their own thinking they need them for part of a vintage line. But if one did come along at the right price point, I'd probably get one. But blue Palatoy, yellow Palatoy, Kenner, uh, I don't know. Thank the maker. This oil bath is going to feel so good. I've got such a bad case of dust contamination, I can barely move. Okay, so on to the next piece then, and we're going to head over to Craig next. Now, people may have seen his blog. This is a great, great topic. You've had a little look at the Looking Comics. Is it a comic or a magazine? Magazine, isn't it? It's a magazine, yeah. Yeah. Over to you, Craig. I think anybody who's got an interest in collecting vintage Star Wars will have come across Looking at some point, and whether that's just been one of their eye-catching covers or an ad or maybe the letter set promotion. That's a real crossover piece from 1978. That's a magazine I've had in my collection for a long time. And it sort of started me on a bit of a journey to explore lookings a bit more. And like all my collecting journeys these days, it has ended up in a massive blog. 
so yeah we've got part one and part two of a blog at generationskywalker.com and it's entitled these are the mags you're looking for so i think it's worth just doing a little bit of background for anybody who's perhaps overseas or indeed anybody that's under 45 because i think there's some specifics about this magazine that we probably need to get into for people to have an appreciation of it so back in 1977 78 the uk had three television channels bbc one bbc two and itv and if you wanted to know what was going to be coming up on the bbc you would have to go and buy a weekly magazine called the radio times and if you wanted to go and see what was coming up on itv you would have to go buy a magazine called the TV Times. And these channels were funded very differently. The BBC was publicly funded through TV license, whereas ITV was uh, financed through advertising. And because of that, they had slightly different flavours. So in really broad terms, the BBC would put out things that were slightly more worthy than their commercially funded uh, rivals. So as a kid, BBC would give you very middle class Blue Peter, whereas ITV would give you the slightly hipper magpie. And on Saturday mornings where you got Swap Shop on uh, on the BBC, you got the anarchy of Tiswas. So these things were very differently flavoured and that was reflected in these listings magazines. So the Radio Times, you know, I remember my grandparents getting the Radio Times and it had a very broadsheet Sunday supplement feel to it, whereas the TV Times was a lot more sort of populist and bright and in your face. And what the TV Times had as an offshoot was a sister magazine, which they dubbed the Junior TV Times, and that was Looking. So what Looking got to do above magazines of that day and age, which were, you know, you could get pinups from your favourite pop stars, film stars, sports stars. You know, everybody did that. But what Looking did is it had access to some very specific properties. So it was able to produce comic strips of popular ITV shows at the time, which is something you couldn't get anywhere else. And the other thing that really made it stand out was it had these beautiful, beautiful painted covers that were probably... I mean, I'd say these covers were, were sort of among some of the most amazing bits of art of the era. The art director team at Looking contacted a chap called Analdo Putsu, who was an Italian artist who worked in London. Now, this guy had made his name through the, the 50s, 60s and 70s, creating uh, movie posters. So he would create posters for like Hammer films and the famous Get Carter poster of uh, Michael Caine and the shirt he's wearing is all kind of psychedelic. That was one of his pieces. So they were commissioning this movie poster guy to paint these covers that gave it this real quality and unique character above anything else that was going on. So, you know, you can imagine all the other magazines have got photographic covers. Looking has got these images that are so full of life and colour. And as it turned out, some really quirky juxtaposition of characters. I mean, Mark, I know you're a fan of this guy's work. In the days before Photoshop, obviously, what always used to really stand out to me was eye for composition. So back then, you know, to paint a picture is what is one thing, but to incorporate several several different unconnected objects or faces or you know whatever was was an art form in itself. I mean, he he was a really talented guy, and clearly, um, I'm, I can only guess that being a film poster artist 
to begin with really stood him in good stead for creating these things because that's what a film put you have to convey a film in either one very very powerful image or you know a, a culmination of several different elements coming together and interacting in a way that emulates the style of film that you are uh, about to go and see so his talent as a, a painter but also as a, a as a designer and um uh, a graphic artist clearly on another level yeah and i think they were lucky to have him i mean he was there he was working in Soho, i think around the corner from where this magazine was being put together it's almost like you feel like he was slumming it for a kid's magazine but it's resulted in a whole body of work because this was a weekly magazine so there are hundreds and hundreds of these amazing images um but looking specifically uh, at star wars i mean itv was quite a rich network you know it had all this cash from you know tobacco alcohol big brand car manufacturers so it had all this money and it was very good at buying all the big glossy shows from the US and bringing them over to the UK so at the time of Star Wars six million dollar man was probably uh, the, the best example of that um, so you would get like a six million dollar man strip inside the comic alongside sort of slightly more homegrown sci-fi like the tomorrow people which was a, a more of a, a kind of uk production so when star wars came out in um, the winter of 77 in london it slotted right into what looking was all about so as you can imagine they just latched on to star wars as a as a real element to their magazines going forward over the next few years all of the the stars would feature but also advertisers like Palatoy and Helix took advertising in their spaces so there are very few issues um, between particularly like the height of 78 into 79 where there isn't an issue with a bit of Star Wars in it somewhere so what I've tried to do with this blog is catalogue it all is to go through and identify these issues and showcase them Um, and what I've tried to do is rather than just make it a big chronological list I've kind of done it in order of, I guess, um, prominence. So the first part of the blog um, looks at when Star Wars got a front cover. Um, so there were a number of issues where Star Wars got the uh, putsu treatment. It got that beautiful uh, work from the artist on the cover. And they are just wonderful. So you know, I think it's important to remember as well that back in the back in the late 70s in the UK with our three TV channels and our strikes and our industrial disputes it was a very dark time so when you look at some of these images you know imagining those on the newsagent stand or landing on your doorstep you can see the impact um, that they might have had so the very first Star Wars cover was in December 1977 and it featured a Star Wars montage on the cover um of well it's all there there's uh there's vader fighting ben there's han dewey leah luke stormtrooper r2 and uh and, and 3po and a and a ralph mcquarrie looking x-wing and that was i i think the introduction to star wars to a lot of uk kids and and, and it was it's just stunning and what that issue gave us was a three-page spread with a competition to win soundtracks and t-shirts and it was just it's just a great kickoff and star wars went on to feature a number of times so the second one came in um not long after in february where you've got mark hamill as luke on the cover next to donna summer 
and the third cover was the the letra set tie-in so that's the one with with the big vader looming over with his sort of cat's eyeballs um very distinct piece of work that is Star Wars breaks out in Look In this week. In every copy of Look In, there's an out-of-this-world free gift. Two rub-down color transfers from Star Wars. And there's a free competition for Star Wars models. Plus, an interview with Harrison Ford. And a color pinup of Han Solo with Chewbacca. And Look In also has the latest adventures of the man from Atlantis, the $6 million man, and the biotic woman. Plus a big pinup of rich kids. So look out, Star Wars explodes in Look In this week. And, and may, may the, the force, force be with you. So... These covers kind of went through from, like I say, 77 was the first one. Star Wars are featured on the television annual with ABBA and the Fonz, <laughs> a few of the people. Um, so it wasn't just the regular issues. It was also things like the annuals, which I think is a very uniquely British thing, where every year they would compile articles and puzzles into a hardback book that people would buy kids for Christmas. So that would happen in the winter and then in the summer you'd have a summer special. So you'd have a slightly bumper edition of a, of a paper magazine. So Star Wars appeared on all of those um, in its time. By the time we get to Empire in 1980, it's a cover by Arthur Ransom, who would later go on to work at uh, 2000 AD. And he worked on a lot of the strips inside the magazine. So it's sort of got that painterly style. And at first glance, you could be forgiven. It's another Putsui piece, but it's not. It's uh, it's by Arthur Ransom. So I've catalogued every occasion that Star Wars appeared on the cover of Looking. And you can scroll through and you can see the covers and how they related to features inside. So, for instance, sometimes it's quite tenuous. Uh, 30th of May, 1981, Chewbacca appears on a montage of monsters. You've got Frankenstein. It's Sweetums from the Muppets and Vincent Price. So clearly Star Wars on a cover helped sell a magazine. So it was shoehorned in quite a bit. It took a different tone in 82. So they dropped the um, the painted covers in September 1981 and things went photographic. But there were still a number of Star Wars covers that, that proceeded. Timed to things like the UK debut of Star Wars being shown in 1982. And then, of course, by the time Jedi comes around, it's a full photographic cover. So I think that's probably a good overview of um, the covers. Each one is nothing short of a work of art. I, I've always loved his work. This all sort of highlights just how uh, we've, we've said it before, and you know, I'm sure we'll say it many times in the future, but back then when we had painted film posters and real artists presenting the craft and things as throwaway as children's magazines where you know real work went into the covers whereas nowadays it's it's just so easy it's sort of photoshop just takes away any kind of magic i guess um any character it's a sad state of affairs but you know at least we we, we have those to uh, remember yeah, and what's been really interesting about doing this is just the contextual stuff that it gives you that collecting Marvel Star Wars weeklies or the poster mags don't give you because they're purely Star Wars. This is this is Star Wars in the context of what else was going on in a kid's life um, at that time. So you do get a cover with Darth Vader and Morka Mindy on it. You do get Han Solo and Chewbacca full colour pinups next to a Benny Hill cartoon strip. <laughs> and it's just i think they're unique documents in that respect and it does make for some really interesting juxtapositions 
the latest cover I've, uh, I found in terms of time dates back to 1989. And it's, uh, I think by this point, it, looking was on its third iteration in terms of its uh, its design styles so it's very very late 80s um but you've got star wars on the cover sharing um space with michaela strachan colin jackson and count duckula and it was a bit of a head scratcher really as to why it was there because it seemed very late on for me but the reason it was there was because it was timed with the showing of from star wars to jedi the making of the saga you know an excuse to trot star wars out again and put it on the cover so there's a whole load of stuff about covers on there. You can go and check that out. Part two of the blog is where Lookin was giving kids of the time full colour pinups. So if you wanted a nice colour Star Wars poster for your wall in the 70s, you had a few options. You could go and get yourself the official Star Wars poster monthly. You could go and buy yourself a Scandicor retail poster. Um, if you didn't win a goldfish, you might have won a a bootleg Hildebrandt from the local fairground. And obviously there were things like the Palatoy colouring poster. So there were a few options if you wanted to stick some Star Wars on your wall. But one of the best ones was magazines like this. And looking obviously realised that. So they put together a series of, of pin-up. Um, so were, these were full-page uh, images of, of the actors in their costumes or scenes from the movie. And they ran in a sequence over... Uh, 1978 so there were eight in total you had c3po and r2 you had one of luke you had one of Chewie, leah han leah again but in a medal ceremony outfit one of han and Chewie, and one of vader and you see these crop up in uh, scrapbooks a lot and there's a great photo that um, a friend of the show phil heeks has let us put on the blog which is him in his bedroom um, and he's got a couple of these posters from the uh, the Poster Monthly and I think it's like a Factors Hildebrand poster. But he's got all of the, uh, well, for the most part, all of the looking pinups on his wall. And it's just brilliant. It's just that, um, that, that moment in time. That's what we did, you know, before the Internet. And I don't know if anyone saw one of the unboxings I did sort of a few months ago with the vintage um, scrapbooks. But if you go and check out our uh, unbox section on the site, there's a there's an unboxing of Letters at Vintage Scrapbooks. And looking through that again, after doing a lot of this research, it's kind of 70 percent looking content in there. Um, so it just goes to show that this stuff was valuable to us. It's stuff we kept. These full page glossy images were important. So they ran a set of eight in 1978, but they also came around again in the early 80s. And did a little run of what they call collector page. So these were slightly more formalized. So, you know, by the time the 80s rolled around, looking had a lot more competition in things like Smash Hits. So Smash Hits was a was a music magazine, slightly irreverent, very, very design-led, wonderful stuff. And looking had to sort of keep pace with that. So they created this what they call collector page, which is a, a combination of a pinup with a little a questionnaire style um, interview down the side with um, with each individual so you could collect you know adam and all his ants or books fizz and in 82 they did a, a set of star wars collector pages and the reason that they timed that for 82 is because that's when the double bill was doing the rounds in the country so again 
seeing the opportunity to get some Star Wars in the magazine. Um, but it's a, it's a lovely little set. So there were six of these, and they were a mix of, obviously, 82. There's a mix of Star Wars and Empire imagery. But again, very of their time. You look at the design of these, the colour of them, the use of shapes. It's very, very <laughs> early 80s looking, a great document. So two sets of pinups. So if you have an eye to go in and collecting runs of these, they're good places to start. They're the most visual elements of the magazine. The plan for the rest of the blog is to tackle all the other mentions. So I know there were features when Jedi came out. They took a chunk of the novelization and printed that in there. There's some behind the scenes special effects stuff around the Empire era. Um, so the, there were features that were specific to Star Wars. There's also a hell of a lot of stuff where it's kind of like, let's do a sci-fi roundup and there'll be Star Wars included in there as as, a, as part of a more of a genre thing. Um, but then there's lots of smaller mentions and smaller kind of news articles where they're featuring models of R2-D2 that kids have made or there was a real sort of drive to feature kids collections kids would photograph their vintage star wars collection not their vintage at the time it was just their star wars collections um, and send them in and occasionally you'd get one of those cropping up in the magazine and they're really nice to capture so i've uh, i'm working on that um there is one where they do a roundup of those there's a full page of kids all stood in their gardens on their patios with trestle tables and all their little loose figures and, and ships and play sets which is which is just wonderful so all that kind of stuff is to come. I've got a stack um, that I'm working my way through, photographing and uh, and logging and doing little write-ups for. And then part four will be all the ads that I mentioned. So certainly the Helix ads that feature the range, they're in a number of times. But I think, you know, if I get it in the right order and I find every issue, there's a there's a pretty comprehensive set of Palatoy ads in, in these magazines as well. So once that's done it will all go on the blog and then at the end what i hope to do is have the ultimate star wars looking database so you can go through chronologically and um issue by issue see what content there was for, for star wars in looking so it's a long job and uh you know i'm probably halfway through it but it's uh it's as good a time to mention it as any um and people can go and uh, and see where i've got to Dude, it's a great blog, which is full of nostalgia for me. Love the fact that it's just 20p. That reminds me, 20p and a 5p mix-up. That was my uh, pocket money. And uh, just goes to show with inflation, actually, my parents were complete tight asses because 20p was not much even back then. I think it's like, it equates to about 78p now or something like that. But um, the numbering is cool on these. I hadn't realised until you had articulated it in your blog because... You know, I came on scene from a collecting point of view in about 82. So after they had changed more to the, the sort of colour photos. But the earlier one, 1982, is number 43 with Han, Luke and Leah um, cutscene from A New Hope. So, that yeah, that was number 43. And then you go to the following year and the uh, the Return of the Jedi one is number 23. So they're, they're not in sequential order, are they? They're in sequential order via that, that year. Yeah. So they'd, they'd, they'd call them volumes. It would revert to number one every 1st of January, depending on where that fell, because it was they'd also list the week ending. And then there are some issues that were never produced because of strikes or right. other things that were going on. So it's, it is a very spotty 
<laughs> spotty kind of history. Um, well, damn you, Spivey, because you've now got me looking at eBay all over again now for something new because I've seen these and I'm like, yes, definitely. And as well as the nostalgia for Star Wars, you're absolutely right because you can look at that and go, oh, yeah, there's an article on chips or there's an article on this and the full guy because uh, who doesn't know all the words to the full guy song? Uh, so, yeah, great blog. I encourage everyone to go and uh, check it out. And uh, thanks, mate. Love it. I think for me, that's, that's the really interesting thing because we've previously discussed this with things like the you know, the Argus catalogue or the Sears catalogue, or um, if you look at the TV Times when Star Wars premieres, and you've also got that extra content of what was in the Zeitgeist at the time, where Star Wars was in pop culture. I think that's that's really interesting. But um, a question, Craig, is, so if I was about to start collecting uh, looking magazines, much like Jez appears to be doing right now, what, what kind of prices am I looking at? Is there any rarities or anything like that? Or, or do these kind of things sort of slip through the net? I saw a couple of the ones with the Star Wars covers on eBay this week for like £79, which is just ridiculous. Um, but I think, you know, that that's all part of that early Star Wars. People think it's worth more money than, than it perhaps is. I mean, these are produced in their, in their thousand. There's, uh, there's plenty around. I, I think there's some interesting things I've noticed. The, 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 the look-ins with the Star Wars covers come up a lot and they can vary. So these things vary a lot on condition invariably they've got someone's name or address scribbled on the front that doesn't bother me but it bothers some people um so i think there are things that you need to look out for like if it's a cover issue whether it's got the inside because sometimes it doesn't so i think for like a cover issue you're probably looking 10 15 quid more if it's super super quality People are quite savvy. Sellers are quite savvy. So if it's got some Star Wars content, that they tend to list it. So if it's one of the pinups, they tend to um, go, you know, Star Wars, Mark Hamill pinup on page whatever. And sometimes you're looking at a bit of a premium on those. I mean, I've been paying between £4.50. I think the most expensive one I've bought is around 15 quid. But it's not the ones you would expect. You'd expect the ones with the covers to be the most expensive. And they're not always. So some of the... Um, the 80s ones I've really struggled to find they've just been a long time on my on my watch list waiting for them to, to come up I think what this is going to do hopefully by the end is is allow people to look for specific issues because there's not a lot of that information out there I mean I've managed to piece together little bits um, there's a brilliant blog which I've put in the um, links at the bottom uh, John's lookout and the lookout checklist and what you can do is you can go on there and you can download high resolution scans of every issue. But you have to <laughs> find the issue, go through one by one, download it, takes a while, it's high res, flick through, no, there's no Star Wars in it. So hopefully I'm saving people um, that job. But yeah, on the whole, you don't want to be paying any more than 20 quid max for, for something that's super, super duper. Because, you know, I think we've seen a spike recently in Marvel Star Wars comics. And maybe the odd starburst as well. But um, one thing I have noticed online is the uh, sale of Paddy Toy one-page adverts or half-page adverts from the comics. So yeah. I wonder if there's anything that's Paddy Toy that's unique to look in that probably wasn't in a Marvel comic. So I haven't got to that bit yet, but they're slightly bigger format than the Marvels. So they're slightly better bang for your buck. 
I think one thing I would say is it's quite thin paper. So they do suffer with condition. There's one particular Palatoy ad on the back cover of an issue from the 80s. And I have yet to find a clean one because it's a white it's a white ad on a back cover. Um, and you do get things like foxing and they do suffer a bit. The, the sort of paper stock does suffer. But I think the, when we get to the ads, and I know that we're going to discuss Palatoy ads in a moment, overlaying what we know about Palatoy ads with, um, with with issues of looking. I think that's going to be, could be quite valuable for people to have that information because it's, it's certainly not out there in any digestible format at the minute. Jez, you need to get in front of that information before those prices spike, mate. Why yeah, I'm already, already <laughs> all over eBay and uh, checking completed listings. And uh, yeah, Craig's pretty on it, actually. <laughs> Damn you, Spike. Thank you. Does you had a look in? Did the rest of you guys have a look in when we when you were a kid? Absolutely, it was. Uh, well, I don't I never used to get it regularly, but friends used to get it. We used to sit there all together and, and, and go through it page by page. Back in the seventies, <laughs> bloody hell! <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I know what you're into, and we're into similar things, Mark. I mean, you get issues where you'd get about a Star Galactic strip in there. There'd be Star Wars pin up in there. There'd be some Book Rogers. I mean, it was. <laughs> It was uh, it was essential, really. It, it really was, and especially when um, uh, going to the cinema back then was such a big deal. Not like it is now, where oh, oh let's go to the cinema. Back then, it was like a, a day out. Well, it was for, for us anyway. It was a real massive treat. And um, television, things like Looking, basically bought things that were like Star Wars onto the TV and made you aware of it. Like you said, there's no internet back then. It was very word of mouth. That's how things sort of travelled. You know, you didn't always know what was coming a month, two months down the line. Magazines like Looking were essential to know that these programmes were about to come onto the TV. You know, we were starved of stuff like this back then. So any outlet that uh, was um, able to give us an insight into, you know, new things coming on the television was absolute gold yeah there can't be many uh publications out there that, that have got big daddy the wrestler and uh a comic strip of mind your language sort of <laughs> mixed in with glossy hollywood productions shocking shocking stuff <laughs> <laughs> i mean you wonder how some of it was translated into kids cartoon strips because these were quite adult bawdy seaside postcard humor of its time and you know you look at some of it now and think jesus how did that go how did that get printed in there? But yeah, that's looking. Yeah, well, a great, brilliant, brilliant topic, mate, and a brilliant uh, blog post. Do go and check that out. Yeah, looking forward to part two, Craig, and part three, part four, part five. There's <laughs> plenty to keep going at. <laughs> la, 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 look, in. look in every week for explosive action la, la, with the bionic woman and the six million dollar man. Look in every week for a load of fun with Benny Hill, Doctor on the Go, and Flintlock. Look in every week for On the Ball, the best in pop, super color pinups, and great competitions. Look in, look in every week. You'll love it. We obviously had Grant talking about his TIE pilot uh, collector journey uh, with that certain card he was looking for. We've had Jez with the Droid Factory, and now, Craig, you've just been talking about uh, a magazine. Now, Mark, you're going to kind of bind the two together now because you've been looking at the Palatoy adverts from the vintage era, obviously advertising the toys in such magazines. So I'm going to hand over to you, my friend. Yeah. Now, this is by no means going to be a ultra comprehensive look at Palatoy adverts in, in the way that the first Star Wars advert appeared in 
Star Wars Weekly, issue five, March 1978. We're not going to go down that road. I'm just going to highlight some of the real gems uh, with regards to positive. So I shall begin. The first Star Wars advert appeared in Star Wars Weekly, issue five, March 1978. And um, it featured uh, a double page spread with the initial Palatoy toy line-up. Um, it was a very, very sort of basic line art comic advert, which Palatoy strangely went down that road rather than photographs. They went for this illustrative approach, which is uh, quite unusual, and actually followed through pretty much the whole of their advertising. It was very rare that they actually used any photographs. They always went with um, illustrative renditions of product. Um, so they're quite unique in that way. So this first advert, uh, like I say, Star Wars Weekly issue 5, March 1978, double page spread, uh, featured things like the Escape the Death Star game, the Kite, which again is one of those Palatoy products that just doesn't seem to be um, on a lot of people's radars. People are quite surprised. Oh, Palatoy did a kite? Yeah, they did. Very rare thing. Uh, they did the poster art sets, uh, the Play-Doh set, the masks, which are like hen's teeth now. You cannot find these for love nor money. And most importantly, the display box, which these things came in, has yet to be found. Whether somebody's got it in a black hole collection somewhere, I don't know. But one does appear. In fact, there are two pictures of it. The first one is in a, in a photograph featuring Dave Prowse at um, the NEC Toy Fair. Um, and in the background, you see the display box and it looks like it's been made up with um, cut out bits of marker pen illustrations been done very rough. And then the second one is in the Palatoy Trade catalogue uh, for 1978, which features a more finished version. It's like blue and orange and white and features the masks and the TIE fighter and uh, X-Wing image, you know, the famous one where X-Wing's coming forward. Uh, so if anybody out there has ever seen one of these in the flash, please let me know, because we would love to know that one of these survives somewhere. Anyway, I digress. The Dip Dops, Palatoy Dip Dops, again, is not something that a lot of people know Palatoy did, but it is one of their products. But again, very, very rare. I missed out on one of these at farthest from by seconds. Uh, for 15 quid and I'm forever kicking myself about it but there you go and it also featured uh, some black and white illustrations of the action figures which most notably had the little uh, slogan available soon because Palatoy like Kenner were in a similar situation where the action figures could not get stock for love nor money so uh, they were very much up against it and it's uh, action figures available soon so yes that appeared in uh, uh, Marvel Star Wars Weekly, which I think a majority of Star Wars Palatoy advertising appeared in, uh, they really did use that springboard for a lot of their new product and advertising because they've got a, a you know a captive audience with that. But it also appeared in titles like uh, Marvel UK titles, should I add, uh, like Spider Man, Marvel Team Up, and uh, Captain America to name but a few. But again, these were largely Marvel UK publications that these Palatoy adverts appeared in. And again, what Palatoy did was they made the adverts look like a comic strip, which again was very unusual, but works perfectly well. I mean, why would you not do that? You're appealing to children, you're advertising in a comic. How do you capture an audience even further by making an advert look like part of the comic strip? It's genius. So then we had the Toys of the Film uh, advert, which again, very sort of rough outline 
drawings, pretty basic at this stage. It has to be said. I know Palatoy had an in-house design department and they were very capable. Uh, they produced some absolutely mind-blowing stuff. Some of these illustrations were a bit rough and on this particular advert was very sort of shakily done. And of course, this also relates to the toy poster, the in-store display poster, which was sent out to shops along with some of the figures to say, you know, toys of the film are here. And it had Luke Leia, Han, uh, R2, I think, maybe C3P, I can't remember. But they, um, these posters are so rare, so valuable, come up for sale so seldomly. I, I dread to think what one would fetch nowadays. Uh, you're probably looking at, I don't know, £1,000, £2,000 possibly, even more maybe to the right person. But yeah, that was part of the same sort of advert. And then we went on to the comic strip adverts, which I briefly mentioned. There was three of these. The first one being the droids advertising the playsets, Plateau playsets, which, as we know, were different from the Kenner ones. So the Coochie Cantina, the Droid Factory and the Land of the Jowers. And it's basically R2 and 3PO highlighting the different features of each playset. And again, this is done like a comic strip. And who did they get to draw these comic strips? None other than Brian Bolland, who, to anybody that knows UK comics, especially uh, 2000 AD, will know that this guy was instrumental in creating Judge Dredd uh, for 2000 AD. And he's one of everybody's favourite Dread artists, uh, amazingly talented guy. And you can definitely see his style in these adverts. Palatoy were very lucky to get this guy to do these adverts because they, they, they do look amazing. Second one was um, Darth Vader's TIE Fighter and Luke's X-Wing. Again, absolutely fantastic image, really striking. You've got Vader's TIE Fighter screaming towards you. Great comic rendition of uh, Vader's TIE Fighter, beautiful black and white illustrations. And then the next one was the next eight action figures. Greedo, Snaggletooth, uh, Walrus Man, Hammerhead, R5-D4, Death Star Droid, and um, Luke X-Wing. And we've got Luke X-Wing basically uh, introducing the new action figures. And what's notable about this particular advert is uh, Palatoy referred to Greedo as Green Greedo, which is quite a famous little, uh, not a mistake, but an embellishment of uh, one of the characters. And again, Brian Bolland did those three adverts. Then we go on to the last uh, sort of notable Star Wars Palatoy advert from the, the Star Wars era, which was the, the 1979 Draw a Droid competition. And the top prize for this was to win a day on the set of uh, Empire Strikes Back, which at that stage was still shrouded in mystery. Empire Strikes Back, what does that mean? We, we thought the Empire was finished. Only Vader survived, you know, fascinating. All these questions swirling around in children's heads at that particular time. It was great to be alive in 1979, waiting for that film to come out. And this was an opportunity to get a day on the set. Now, what a prize that must have been. I've got a photograph of Mark Hamill in what looks to be a production office at Alstree, uh, must have been. And I've got a feeling this would have been on Dagobah. They, 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 I think they visited the Dagobah set. Mark Hamill is there dressed in his Bespin fatigues. And there's not a mark on these fatigues as well. So it must have been very early in the shoot. And there is six young guys, varying age. One looks to be about six or seven, up to about, I don't know, 12, 13 maybe. And they're all stood there, marks in the middle of them. And they're all stood there and they're holding in their hands. Each one of these guys is holding a mint. Well, it would have been mint back then, but a palatoy boxed Death Star 
and shrimp wrapped all together in the same package and you can see this quite clearly it looks to be the whole first 20 star wars action figures panzoi did so to go on set uh, to see empire strikes back being filmed and then to be given these toys as well and meet mark hamill what what a day what a prize that must have been i wonder if anybody out there knows who any of these guys six guys here is they must still be out there must have some kind of memory of that day uh, would be lovely to find out they did the same for um the tv show jim will fix it they had a, a competition where one of the children visited the dagobah set and got to have a picnic with mark hamill I, 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 I didn't know that, mate. I didn't yeah. know. I, I, I was trying not to go down the gym will fix it road, to be honest with you. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that. That's, uh, that's fascinating. They, they, they must have also had it open to, to other prize winners, other competitions. It must have been other. Because they gave out those passports, didn't they? The um, Empire Strikes Back uh, visit the SAT passport. I've got one, and they're numbered from zero up to about three, four hundred, I think. So there must have been a steady stream of people going through that set as a promotion or through media events and all the rest of it or special guests. Busy, busy set at Alstree, that. Are, are, they, are, are they numbered, are they? Because I know that there's a lot of overstock of those. Like, uh, yeah, I think those, those came from Gary Kurtz, yeah. uh, the chap in the States, but almost a lot of what Gary Kurtz uh, uh, from Gary Kurtz's office uh, so there are some unnumbered ones in circulation that's that's for sure but the, the numbered ones are the ones you want because those are the ones that are or, or certainly stamped yeah the stamped ones those are the ones that actually went through the sat right okay so Star Wars era came to an end 1979 and we're swiftly into the Empire Strikes Back era now this is where we get some quiet bombastic imagery from Palatoy, the first one being the Boba Fett offer. And it's Boba Fett fights for the highest bidder, but he's yours for free, most notably. And this Palatoy, again, different from Kenner, cut the nameplates to send away for the figure. And this is why you see so many card backs in the UK, Palatoy cards with cut nameplates. Sometimes I've, I've seen, you know, you'll see even figures that the figure is still attached to the card, and yet the nameplate has been cut out. So what is that all about? That's very strange, isn't it? And don't know what's happened there, whether somebody's gone into the shop or somebody working in a toy shop thought, oh, I'm going to send away for that, but I don't want to buy a figure. I'll take it around the back, cut the nameplate out, put it in my pocket and put it on the shelf. I don't know. Maybe I've overthought that a bit. Uh, anyway, so yeah, you would uh, cut so many nameplates out and you would be able to send away for free things. Now, this is a great gimmick by Palatoy because what it does is it gets people buying the product. They've got to buy the product to get the, the, the freebies and there's no other way around it. You have to get, you know, the, the action figures. So it was a great way of them being able to find out who was buying what, how many were, were being sold. A great marketing ploy by Palatoy. Um, there was no sort of copying them. You know, you, they had to be legitimate things. And there was an advert featuring rather beautifully airbrushed Boba Fett action figure. Quite imposing because it's rather than shot sort of illustrated straight on, it's got a bit of an angle to it. So you're looking up at him. Quite dramatic. Again, this only exists in black and white. There's no colour version of this at all, and which is quite surprising, really, because Boba Fett's a very bright, colourful action figure. Uh, but yeah, only black and white exists. You also had an in-store leaflet, which again, very small black and white image of Boba Fett with all the little details of the, the action figure, things like toolkits and rocket packs. 
So after the, the very famous Boba Fett advertisement and promotional campaign, we go on to a uh, black and white advert which basically shoehorns in about as much product into a comic strip as you can possibly get in. Uh, we had things like the, the Tall Tool, the Snow Speeder, the Clyde Car, the TIE Fighter, all existing in one little adventure on one page. So you can just imagine how quickly that jumps. But again, very quick, beautifully done, fantastic looking advert. Next, we've got the first colour advert for the Empire era, which is the for the action figure display stand, um, which again, promotion, where you got to uh, send in four nameplates plus £2.50, and you got a display stand, like plastic, uh, L-shaped plastic boards with cardboard backdrops, and they had reversible images on there, so you could make up a little display and they interlocked and uh, break little piece quite a rare piece to find now as well from palace so in the states it's called the display arena isn't it yes and, the display uh, arena and in this ad it's called it's described as four display stands <laughs> it's a, it's a beautiful looking ad but it really doesn't sell that product it's it's actually quite a cool modular thing you can make loads of different shapes out of it. You can change the scenery. And the ad itself is really quite basic. I mean, it's a nice image. You've, you've got 3POR2, Han Hoth, Luke Bespin and Vader. And they're, they're picking up that thing where, you know, they're looking up at Boba Fett on that other ad. They're looking up from their feet here. But what that does to the stand is it just makes it a little white strip with some nobbles on it. Yeah, I guess it's... I don't think sells it at all. Well, I, I, yeah, it's a bit of a tricky one to to make look interesting to be honest with you because it's it's like you say it's very modular sort of very flat yeah i'm not sure how they would go about illustrating that i wondered how i would do it they Um, do a better job on the card back because it shows the different configurations you can make yeah they could could have done that on the on the advert i guess but (laughs) (laughs) i've I've not really given any thought to it (laughs) no it it was one that's cropped up in my blog so i've given it more attention than i probably normally would yeah, I mean, I had one of those uh, back in the day, uh, one of those figure stands, and I was quite underwhelmed by it, to be fair. Um, when, when I got it opened up, I was expecting something really quite elaborate, and it was it was as dull as ditch water. But there you go. <laughs> so Empire, carrying on with the with the Empire, we get the capture log promotion, which again, if you if you're familiar with Palatoy, um, you will know the uh, little bounty hunter capture log little seals that you used to get on the uh, boxes and on the back of uh, cards as well. Instead of cutting nameplates, you went out and collected these little tags, which again, you know, bounty to Palatoy marketing team, design team, going into overdrive, thinking how can we, you know, generate this this whole bounty hunter theme a bit further and uh, let's get the kids going out and hunting. Yeah, buy more products and cutting the things out off the boxes so they have to buy the product in order to get the, the freebies the second one much like uh, the boba fett figure we got dengar which was again another black and white illustrated uh, looking up uh, at dengar making look quite menacing this was the first bounty hunter i had as a child i remember buying it quite vividly from john menzies in newcastle underline you know when you stood there in front of the rack of figures and you you scratch your head and you think oh god which, which one can i have and you'd flick through the rail see which figures were hiding behind the the backs of the ones on the front and finally i found dengar and i think this guy had only just come out because i remember looking at it i hadn't seen empire strikes by and thinking god isn't he cool he's got a backpack what a cool figure again 
collect three nameplates, send it in, and you got the the action figure Dengar. Again, those figures at the moment uh, currently are fetching upwards of £800 if you can find one in the correct bag and box, because a specific box, very specific Palatoy Brad Kate baggy figure for that promotion. So they are very, very rare. And considering how popular these Palatoy promotions were, Palatoy Boba Fett's mail away Boba Fett's are just like hen's teeth and the same goes with Dengar. They're so few and far between you just don't find them. Mark, is that the same as well for the the Dengar carded figure with the Dengar offer on it as well? That's rare as well, isn't it? That's the 45A. Uh, that again, that's that's another very rare figure, but but we have it on good authority. There is it's either a 41 or a 30 back Dengar in existence. Somebody I've been told has one, but there isn't a photograph. But I have it on good authority, and I have no reason to disbelieve this person. So, but until I see a photograph of it, then it still remains a bit of a mystery. Why have you not seen any others anywhere else? So, uh, yeah, hopefully one day one might arise. And then we get another advert after the Dengar ads. We get the Vader carry case, uh, which again was part of the capsule. You can either get a survival kit for four nameplates. There's Dengar figure for three nameplates or a carry case, uh, Vader's carry case for six nameplates. And uh, that was part of the capture log promotion. And then lastly, we get the um, Meet the Stars of Revenge of the Jedi by creating a new bounty hunter, which again was great idea by Palito to get kids using their creativity to create these new characters, get young minds thinking about, you know, different characters in the universe and stars and creating their own things so a very imaginative way of interacting with their audience who were quite captive it is thought that the, the winners of this design a bounty hunter competition uh, got to visit the rebel briefing room and the home one hangar bay as there are publicity shots you <laughs> say of uh, children in the background on those sets. So it's looking likely that whoever won that competition got to visit the set on that particular day. So there we go. And then lastly, we've done Star Wars and Empire and we're on to the Jedi era. And first off is the colouring competition with 3,000 prizes to be won. This was quite a, a major competition that Palatoy run. I mean, by the time uh, Jedi was in full effect, the marketing team were hitting their stride. They knew exactly what the deal was and how best to uh, manipulate sales. So this, uh, again, was another colouring competition by Palatoy. And uh, there was adverts and there was leaflets, install leaflets, four-page A4 leaflets that included a comic strip, which, again, you know, getting that free in a shop, even a piece of paper with just a, a bit of a comic strip on, start it with Star Wars, you know, it's free, I'm having it. And then we go on to the Palatory adverts, which, for me, personally, I think these are the best ones. Now, I don't collect Jedi stuff, so but I do really love these adverts. And these are the adverts which feature the free Emperor figure, which you have to collect six nameplates to, to get. The free Rancor Keeper, which again, another six nameplates to get him free. Or Chewbacca's Bandoila offer, which was five nameplates plus £3.50. 
Now, what makes these adverts stand out to me is they were done by uh, an artist called Frank Langford, who was a freelance illustrator and comic artist, and uh, born in 1926, died in 1996. And he was a prolific comic artist, sequential comic art, commercial artist. He, If you look through comics, UK comics at the time, if he wasn't doing the actual strips, he was doing the adverts for you know, companies like uh, Smarties, Shivers Jelly, KP Outer Spaces, Captain Hurricane, Treeboard, Tubars, Corgi, all really typical British 1970s, 1980s brand names. Um, and he was responsible for selling their product through to children in comics and magazines. His art is, quite honestly, uh, if you're a comic artist and a fan of comic art, you will probably know Frank Langford and, and know what a powerhouse he was because not only was he excellent at creating really dynamic strips, and I think this is why he works so well within advertising circles, is because they're very dynamic and he uses typography beautifully. He had a real good understanding of layout and composition and, you know, how to tell a story in, in a limited amount of space. Uh, he was he was a, nothing short of a master. But he also did film posters, much like uh, uh, Puzer, who, who did the look on uh, looking covers, he did film posters for the Sweeney, which, again, typical British 1970s, 1980s um, cop show. He did the quad poster for the uh, cinematic release of that, of that. And he also did uh, the old Curiosity Shop, Are You Being Served film. He did the poster for that as well. His art for, for those particular posters was very, very similar. If you look at the Sweeney uh, poster and you look at Tom Chantrell's a Star Wars quad poster, the style is almost identical. But going back to these three adverts, anybody that knows these adverts and have seen them in magazines will know how beautiful they are. They're very stark against a white background with really quite bold, bright colours. He actually manages to make an action figure look dynamic and a bit of movement in there. He's not just showing it sort of straight on, apart from the Emperor, who's pretty static anyway. Uh, but the Rancor's got a bit of movement and Chewbacca's Bandoyla being uh, modelled by some kid. Just really beautiful illustrations. And you don't get to see that kind of style of illustration anymore because everything's digital. Whereas pen on paper to me is, is there's something magical about it and something really that's very hard to emulate on screen. For me, artists like this need to be really sung about because they, they, they were masters. End of an era. I quite like the headlines as well. We used to have a, a phrase in advertising, one's an ad, two's a fluke and three's a campaign. But I, re- I really like the uh, back one from now on, the future of the rebellion rests on your shoulders. I think that's really sweet. The emperor wants buy the troops and get the leader free. The rancor keeper, not so sure about this one. Keep a rancor keeper free. Not as good as either two, but they're, they're a nice set. Yeah, I, I just, I, I love them. And again, these things uh, actually existed as more than just adverts. There was uh, bush shelter posters and uh, in-store display posters as well. And if you can find them, they are incredibly rare, incredibly sought after and incredibly expensive. That is a very, very brief overview of Palatoy advertising. And I'm sure there's more out there that could be... Uh, looked at and i'm sure there's people out there that will have more details on stuff um, where they appeared but that is as sort of brief an overview as i can make it 
Just looking online, though, these Paddy Toy adverts, they, the majority of them seem to be coming from the UK Marvel comic. So you've probably got a 50p beta comic and a, a Paddy Toy advert that's for sale for 60 quid. Crazy. People cutting the magazines up for them as well. This Star Destroyer is closing in Just a matter of time now Stormtroopers will board our ship We might not make it out So I'll record this message With these secret plans And then send these droids to Tatooine The rest is in your hands Obi-Wan You're my only hope mate thank you all so much for all of your uh, all of your topics you've studied i think all four have been been a pretty good account i set grant a task of a one tie pilot a day for a week after this show but um i think all of you should be doing a few posts on we are generation skywalker with what you've been discussing tonight been good to um, see um, well, do what about an advent calendar yeah there you go. Grant is going to do an advent calendar of Thai. Thai products. It's going to be a very, very dark Christmas. That's very generous of him, wasn't it? That was a great recommendation. It was. It's just well taking all the pressure off you, Craig, there. It's just like, I'm in. I'm, I'm, I'm glad doing an advent calendar. It, it'll be Grant Christmas, not Grant Criddle. Uh, Grant Christmas. What a lovely name. 
Um, if you do want to go and uh, keep an eye on Grant's advent calendar, head over to our social media. On Facebook, we've got obviously our page where we, we release everything, but we also have our We Are Generation Skywalker page. So go and have a little look for that. Instagram and Twitter, just search for Generation Skywalker. Head over to YouTube. You'll find all our enhanced. You'll find unboxing videos. You'll find Skywalker Blast, which are just small segments of um, a specific topic, which, uh, to be honest with you, Craig, I think you've got four Skywalker Blasts for 2022 here tonight. Definitely, yeah. Uh, one for the future again just search for generation skywalker over there hit that subscribe button and um of course you can head over to www.generationskywalker.com where you can find links to everything including the blogs i mean two of the blogs uh, two of the topics tonight have come from blog posts so be sure to go and check them out uh, lads anything to add before we completely wrap this up i had a dream last night about thrawn but that's for another time <laughs> you got your clothes on jazz it's really weird. I'm just I'm trying to read a little bit more when I go to bed, uh, you know, just to help me sort of unwind rather than just like, look at phone or watch telly. And I'm still reading that book, which I bought the other day. And uh, and I dreamt about it. How crazy is that? The big red ball just bounces through your dreams. <laughs> well, boys, like we said at the beginning of the show, can't wait for Father's From. It's going to be great to all get together, cause some mayhem, and just generally have have a good laugh. But uh, it is for the show. Goodbye from Craig. Cheerio. Goodbye from Mark. Good night. Goodbye from Grant. Uh, goodbye, everyone. And it is goodbye from Jez. Thanks for looking in. Clever. And it is good night from me. And we're Generation Skywalker. <laughs>